action in the street is exciting But Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting I've been reading and writing We need to handle our financial situation Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? A past patiently waiting and passionately smashing Every expectation, every action to act of creation I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into a brand new episode of Let's Dive Deep. My name is Bradley. My name is Connor. And today we are going to be continuing our deep dive into the hit Broadway musical and pop culture phenomenon, Hamilton. During today's episode, we will be focusing on songs 18 through 21. That's Guns and Ships, History Has Its Eyes on You, Yorktown, and What Comes Next. As per usual, we will be taking into account the Disney Plus version of the musical, the soundtrack, and of course, the experience of seeing Hamilton live. So, no matter where or how you have experienced Hamilton, this is the perfect place for you to be. As always, Let's Dive Deep contains adult content like war. There's war, there's battles, things kids shouldn't be involved in. So if you're listening to this podcast around children, I, I don't really recommend it, although we, we do try not to be over overly rude at times. Additionally, Let's Dive Deep Hamilton does contain spoilers. A lot of them. Enough to fill a dozen Easter baskets. While our focus each episode is a specific set of songs, we will always take into account the entire musical to add context to our discussion. If you are enjoying this podcast, you can find other Let's Dive Deep series in your favorite podcatcher. Up until the point of recording, I have also completed a deep dive into the first season of Bridgerton. We just found out recently that the main lead actor that makes season one of Bridgerton good is not going to be in season two, so that's a whole problem. But if you want to hear the season one takes, feel free to search Let's Dive Deep in your podcatcher. Um, that'll be Let's Dive Deep Bridgerton. And finally, please do not throw away your shot. Go and leave us those five-star reviews wherever you are listening to this. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Let's Dive Deep and send in your questions and comments to letsdiveDeeppod at gmail.com. Again, as always, we would love to hear from you. Okay, so that is all the chorin. Now that we're ready to go, let's kick back, relax, maybe grab your beverage of choice. If you've been watching me and Bradley stream recently, you know I've got mine. And let's dive <laughs> deep into Hamilton. The Battle of Yorktown. 1781. Monsieur Hamilton. Monsieur Lafayette. In command where you belong. Are you saying no sweat? We're finally on the field. We've had quite a run. Immigrants. We, we get, get the, the job, job done. done. So what are we France, I bring freedom to my people if I'm given the chance. We'll be with you when you do. Go, lead your men. See you on the other side. Here we be again. So Guns and Ships, the first song we are, are tackling today, comes as 
just a complete opposite vibe uh, to that would be enough where we ended off last time. And as you watch this in the musical, it's just a complete 180 in, in terms of mood, in terms of scenery, in terms of just the vibe might be the right word. But I can see in your notes here, you put in all caps, David Diggs, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in all capital letters, we have taken the time to really highlight some star performances so far uh, with Leslie Odom Jr. as Aaron Burr and Philippa Sue and Renelius Goldsbury and all of those when they had their moment to shine so far. Um, so why don't you take it away, David Diggs, ladies and gentlemen? I, I could say what else needs to be said, but let's take a moment here to highlight this guy. This is, in my opinion, one of the greatest performances in the show. And as I'm starting to think about that song ranking that I have to do, that I'm terrified by. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, right. But in my mind, there is a column as I start to analyze these songs. There's columns for musical variety. There's columns for impact. There's columns for emotional weight. And in my mind, there's a column for are Diggs or Odom Jr. in it? Like that in my <laughs> mind, that's what makes a, a, like one, a superior track in Hamilton. This guy is a dynamo, right? And in your thoughts here, what a uh, what a stark contrast to what came before. What a what a momentous uh, contrast to that would be enough. And David Diggs is part of that. So I I, I want to talk about him, and I want to talk about Lafayette. But first of all, I cannot. So so just David Diggs and his technical ability. I cannot imagine being Lin-Manuel Miranda writing this song and thinking, yeah, I'll find somebody that can perform that. You know, it's stuff that like Sondheim does. Like he writes these things and just, you know, I can, you know, somebody will play this. It'll be fine. It'll be great. I'm curious to know if they knew about David Diggs and then like targeted him because everybody in this show is talented. Everybody is. But David Diggs is uniquely talented at this rapid fire Eminem style rap that that we don't really see from anybody else in the cast, right? And and this is a true moment for him to shine. Like his performance as Lafayette here is brilliant. He's he's got this very aggressive, militaristic, uh pompous like energy he's proud of who he is he knows he's good at what he does but there's also this you know i i really i i don't know how else to put it man it's very french he kind of has this this what <laughs> he has this joie de vivre about him he has kind of this this attitude this this sexiness this this very um musical sensuality that is unique to Lafayette in the cast. And I think that that's important, right? We see a little bit of it in Jefferson because we do have the connection there uh, with David Diggs playing both parts. But there's something about Lafayette that is importantly and dynamically unique. And I think that, number one, subjectively, I love it. But objectively, coming out of Burr's narrator into hype man intro david diggs takes this number and sends it up into the stratosphere man like it is just it it's electric it's amazing 
the, there's so much going on here with David Diggs' performance. I think aside from the, there's, I think there's the rapping part of it, which is incredible, and then there's the character work as Lafayette, which is also incredible, and then they merge together to create this brilliant performance. I think from the the character point of it, though. Regardless of what Lafayette was like in real life, in the musical, he has a very specific function. He's kind of, um, he's kind of that, like you said, there's a joie de vivre about him. There's a kind of pompous, arrogant, funny, that, that's his role in the cast. Everyone has like their own things going on and that's his thing. Hercules Mulligan, up until we see him a little later, is pretty much just been comic relief up until this point, And that's his thing. That's what he kind of contributes as a character. Because if all four of your, if, if your friends are the same, then they're all kind of boring together. So mm-hmm. taking Lafayette and really stretching his character to the maximum without overdoing it is very difficult. And he finds the perfect line where he takes all of the defining characteristics of Lafayette in the musical, not necessarily in real life, but musical Lafayette, he takes all of those characteristics that are unique to that character and, and maximizes them or maximizes them without ever overdoing it. I never get the sense that he's he's too pompous, he's too loud, he's too arrogant he's too whatever like he he hits it perfectly and then he just combines it with it with his rap skill and it happens twice there's that initial just rapid fire bit of rapping that i really like i think his best performance here comes with the letter bit the lines uh-huh. i mean you've got to put the you got to put some thought into the letter but sooner the better to get your right hand man back when you when you listen to it the way he enunciates all those words and how quickly he does it it is incredibly impressive I spent so much time when this soundtrack came out. Just I, I had to keep pressing repeat to understand exactly what he was doing. It's mind boggling. I know you got to put some thought into the letter, but the sooner the better to get your right hand man back. Like it's just his the way he does that, and also he's been singing and dancing for an hour now. It's not like he's right, exactly that's, a, that's like, part of it too, you know. And he and the stamina he has. But what you're talking about. Him, that that performance there about the letter, but contrasted with everything else that he is. You brought up a great point a second ago. The stateliness that he possesses when he talks to Washington, all of that bravado becomes propriety. That confidence remains. He seems to be very sure of what he's saying, right? But he knows that he's addressing His Excellency General Washington. And yeah, it's, he not, is, it's not overdone at all. It's not overdone at all, but it's pushed to its maximum limit. It's perfect because we do intuitively know that Lafayette is a man of status. He's got to be. And peeking behind the corners of the musical and looking into history just a little bit. He is the Marquis de Lafayette. He, He is a titled man. He is noble. And so he is on, in my opinion equal footing with Washington, if not in the view of the world superior to Washington at this point, right? And so to see him treat Washington with such respect and such proper protocol in that moment and contrast it with his bombastic and flamboyant dancing, and I don't know, I don't know how else to call it, but this bounce that he does that is uh that is just so beastie boys you know absolutely beastie boys yeah 15 seconds ago he was conferring with washington very soberly and now uh now we're at a music festival 
you know it's just <laughs> like he really does he really does cover all of lafayette's bases really well i think that it's number one a very well constructed character by the creative team that they wrote in all of these opportunities for lafayette and i think it's equally well performed by Diggs. absolutely absolutely and i think the situation with washington too it's like lafayette or, or sorry, Washington needs Lafayette quite a bit more significantly than Lafayette needs Washington. Lafayette's going to be okay either way. Washington like needs a win here and pretty quickly. And Lafayette is one of the main player players in helping secure that. So when you're talking about like the state, the state, the stateliness of it all, I guess is the right word. Um, it is a little bit surprising because Lafayette doesn't need this guy. I mean, he's here for his purpose, and it's something I want to talk about later in Yorktown. Right. Yeah. And, and he mm-hmm. wants to be here and he has a purpose here and all that. Right. But he can just go be the Marquis de Lafayette somewhere else. Like he doesn't need to be here in this revolution. Whereas Washington's all in like Washington needs to either win or he's probably dead. Those are the, those are the two options here. And so I, he, one needs one needs the other um, more for sure. Yeah, I think the the ex, the the exploration of need is is not really done in the musical. Because, and again, a lot of this ties into Yorktown as well, but I, I guess we, you know, there's, there's value in laying some groundwork here. The French involvement in the American Revolution is very opportunistic. <laughs> it's very, <laughs> like, it benefits France very well. And you can say the same about the Spanish and Dutch involvement. Because when you think about all of the the powers that are getting themselves involved in this revolution, they're all colonial powers that also have interest in the Bahamas, in the East Indies. You know, they are vying for control of colonies with Britain. And so it's very wise to help these upstarts take the British down. This is a very opportune, you know, they, they saw their shot and they took it. Right. Yeah, and, and the this king very later calls late it cheating. The, yeah. the king later calls it cheating. Like you cheated. Like you, we were fighting with each other, and you're a little cheater pants. Like yeah. You called in. You called in the reserve squad here, and that wasn't very fair. So yeah, mm-hmm. even even within the musical, the king. It's a small line, and it kind of you kind of miss it. But he does he does think of it as like cheating. Like we yeah. were fighting each other, you coward, and then you brought in all these other people, and that wasn't very. Very fair. Um, we're oh, gonna, we're... that's that's interesting. I take that line to mean because I, you know, I have this it, it, this head canon of like the show gives us America and England as like separating lovers, right? And oh, like, like the, the jilted lover thing. I could see it that and, way too. And so it's like the Amer the colonies are cheating on George with the French is the way. Oh, I, take I always it. I I always saw it as like cheating. Like you cheated in the war. Like he's grumpy because they yeah. he was gonna he was gonna win. And then America cheated and called in the French. Uh, that's interesting that you, I could totally see it the other way too, where there's definitely a jilted lover theme going on here. Yeah. Um, and that, I totally see it your way too. I just never thought about it. How interesting. That's, that is such a tiny line to have two different interpretations like that. That's very, that's yeah. very interesting. All right. We'll talk me. about that. Anyway, yeah, later, later. <laughs> so <laughs> um, Lafayette. Uh, I was actually going to say, we're going to, lots of Lafayette in this, in this podcast episode. It's going to be almost exclusively Lafayette here for a while. Um, but let's kind of start from the top with Aaron Burr. He, there's a few moments in here. This is not kind of Burr's podcast episode, which is fun for us to kind of get to explore some of the other characters a little bit. Um, but his one kind of big moment here is he is the narrator. You and I both separately wrote and the hype man. 
Like he is all it's it's a weird bit here because we've slowly kind of gone from Burr being on like firmly like both siding it to now mm-hmm. like when he's talking to Washington, he's like, Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna here are my ideas for winning. He's like definitely with the revolutionary uh war now. Like he's picked his side, but he's still not fully committed. And here he is just like he there is no he's even when he's delivering like how do we emerge victorious from the quagmire like his smirk he's so proud he's all high and mighty and then mm-hmm. the way he hypes up the intro to Lafayette it's a very weird departure from the character we know so far and it might just be that he's again like a little bit of unreliable narrator now that they've won like he's telling this story now that he knows the ending of it now that they've won, maybe he's like, I'm going to I'm gonna pretend like I was this hyped about it the whole time because this is awesome. Also, it's just what the song needs, I guess, too, right? Like, the song just needs to be hyped up this much for America's favorite fighting Frenchman. Like, if you're going to give David Diggs these, these raps, someone's got to be the hype man. It's a very rap thing to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot going on here with Burr. Again, some of it character related, some of it just what the song needs. But let's uh, dive into that a little bit here. Yeah, I think it all functions well. I don't think that there's anything that 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 distracts me from what I know about Burr already. I do take I do take Burr's presentation here as being all in. And I think that there is something about the psychology of collective action that that can convince you to believe that Burr is in it to win it at this point. And I feel the same way about everybody else here because they've gone too far to give up now, right? Right, absolutely. And I, I, do, I, I do see the idea of Burr moving through the ranks, having achieved status and making his way through the army, doing very well for himself. He can, he can see how the war is beneficial now. And now that it has has given him rank and Burr can benefit from it, he can be all in. Now, I'm going to acknowledge that that's a little bit of a cynical take, but add to it, this is a society where honor and, and status mean a lot. So looking at it through the lens of the time, I, it's not that much of an insult to Burr for me to say that. Not really. I don't think. I think it's we talked about it. But when you talk about about it. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, we talked about it with Hamilton in the last couple podcast episodes. Like, all these characters are in the gray, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if if winning the war is what you want because you don't like the British and it can serve you, then then you've just hit two birds with one stone, right? Like, I wouldn't expect any of our characters to be perfectly unselfish here. Like, of course, if if one war outcome leaves you better off than the other war outcome, you're naturally going to be more of a hype man for that one because you get personally more benefit out of it. Absolutely. And of course, I'm going to acknowledge that I stand Burr pretty damn hard. And so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt naturally. That's fine. But also, I kind of like in in the context of what we understand about honor, we just had one entire song about honor, right? Um, Gilbert and (laughs) Sullivan would be very, very proud. Um, But it it does kind of make sense. Now, to, to your other point about just what the song needs, yeah, it is, right? Because you need to have that ascendancy. We need a transition period from that would be enough. And Leslie Odom Jr., when he's doing the narration at the beginning, I get this feeling from him that the energy 
is just like he's trying to control it and he's about to lose it. Oh, there abs- is. I feel like I'm at a boxing match and he's like introducing the fighters and they're about to like it is the energy is like it's unquantifiable. It's like bursting out of him. Yeah. And it finally does. He hops up on the railing of the balcony there and it's this primal stance. I mean, it's like the three-point hero landing, right? He's re- <laughs> he's ready for action, ready to go. And then when he throws the ball to Lafayette, the energy goes at uh, you know stratospheric, right? It I was just gonna say it's actually up. surprising it goes higher. Now, now that yeah. you're saying it, like it goes from Burr, and it's like pretty. If if Lafayette's part wasn't as crazy as it was, like that would have been pretty good hype. Right. And that I would think the, the, I think that Diggs is one of the few people that can top Odom. Yeah, I I think so too. Like he he definitely takes over this song. It's written for Lafayette. It's not written for Burr. Burr's doing Burr's doing a lot with a little bit of narration at the beginning. Lafayette uh-huh. has loads to work with here. Like David Diggs certainly in this number has way more to work with. But at like performance wise, like he takes Burr's already incredible narration at the beginning and and just adds so much more to it. Yeah, and and he does so quickly with some amazing technical ability. Speaking to tech real quick and ability, there's some great efficient staging going on here during the introduction of Lafayette. It's subtle, but brilliant. Like a lot of things in this show, he's at a table and everyone is gathered around him and that visually immediately suggests whatever's going on in that moment He's the leader of that moment. It implies to me that he's either devising plans or explaining his plans to those around him. So on top of Burr's narration, we have the visual cue that people look to Lafayette for leadership. And it's where staging can be so simple, but still line up with the dialogue in a clever way. And I wanted to point that out and commend it because as soon as we get into his moment after the the energy is passed from Burr to Lafayette, jumps up on the the table, we have this great sting and live move from the lights, which is just so rock and roll, so hip hop. You know exactly what we're about to get into. And then, yeah, the energy just goes right up into the fly loft and we are off to the races. Yeah. Um really enjoy that this song continues with the 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 questions that Hamilton poses one of the one of the things you you said at the very first podcast episode about the very first um line of the show is that it starts with a question and what's interesting here is we we're still getting that we're halfway or almost halfway through this musical now and Burr is still starting this with how does a ragtag volunteer army mm-hmm in need of a shower, defeat a global superpower. And it's interesting because we all, we already know that they win, right? We're all watching this in, in 2021 or earlier whenever you first watched Hamilton or whenever in the future you're first kind of coming into Hamilton. We already know. Like, America's been around for 200-plus years now. So mm-hmm. we know that they win, but it's still interesting that Burr is here, like, still posing those questions, and it, it re-engages us with the story. Because in, in a musical, there's lots going on, especially in this one, especially in this song. There's so much dancing and fighting and and singing, and, like, it can all be a little overwhelming. So having that moment to recenter it around the story and asking asking a question, I, I found I found that it really refocuses the viewer 
Like, yes, this is all, what you're watching is fucking incredible, but also there is a story going on that we're working with here. And I, I like that. I like that subtle bit of reframing before all the energy hits so we can mm-hmm. re-engage with the story a little bit. Because you can, you can pretty easily lose the story if you just want to look at all the lights and fun things going on, or if you're just watching it for the first time. Um, I think it's easy to get lost. And I think this, this one line here does a, does a lot to, to keep you engaged as a viewer. It also gives us a signpost that we're going into a new chapter. We have the yeah. we have the musical refrain for narrator Burr return. Although, if you notice, it's been sped up just a touch. Yeah, it's faster. You can definitely feel yeah. that. Yeah, and so you already know there's more energy coming, right? But yeah, it does it does reframe things, and the reminder of there still being questions to be answered is a great trick for keeping the audience engaged. And I don't think Hamilton is going to lose any audience member. I don't think you can get distracted in this show. But, I mean, mentally engaged. I mean, stimulated, right? You're still you're still thinking, oh, yeah, I do still have these questions that still have not been answered. And so now, maybe this is the chapter that will answer these specific questions. And then the audience knows that it's going to answer these but there are still questions from the top of the show that will remain unanswered, right? And that's why you come back for Act 2, because so much has still been left uh, lingering. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, what I like about this one, too, is it's a very broad question about something we already know. Like, what we already know what happens here, right? So it's about how do we get there. With some of the questions later... Like, how does Hamilton, the protean creator of the Coast Guard, like, that's something most people don't know. Like, everyone mm-hmm. knows that America wins, and this question does a lot to reframe it. But what I find interesting is it's not really giving you new information, whereas a lot of the other questions when they open about Hamilton, we are learning something that the average audience member does not know about history. So it's mm-hmm. interesting how these questions can serve the two purposes. Like, this is a good question to reframe kind of our mindset going in. Like you said, like, this is a sign marker for where we are in the story and what's coming next. Right. But it also doesn't ask a question about new information like how does Hamilton, the, the protean creator of the Coast Guard, you're like, oh, shit, that's cool. I didn't know that happened. Like, that's interesting. <laughs> well, I think these questions are designed to show us how important, how valuable Lafayette is. Right. And that too. Yeah. We're, we are supposed to understand that it is because of Lafayette that what you are about to see happened. It's single-handedly because of Lafayette in this moment. This is where the focus is. And that's crucial because if we believe everything the show is telling us about Lafayette, then we will believe he's right to tell George Washington to get Hamilton back. First, we have to believe that Lafayette is right so that when he says get Hammy back, he's not being dumb. Hashtag, Hashtag get Hammy back. (laughs) <laughs> sorry that it's was all- i had to interrupt that was too perfect of a hashtag to not oh no worries hashtag get hammy but the thing is we like if if lafayette is unreliable then we may not believe that our man is the right man and so we have to know that lafayette is so good and so trusted and seeing him change washington's mind is crucial to that i think but it lets us it lets us view Lafayette as a signpost of Hamilton's nobility and his quality 
And Lafayette does a lot to tell us, no, Hamilton is very, very useful. Like, he's it, maybe Hamilton was right. He shouldn't have been sitting at a desk. And also, it's almost a throwaway line. He's also fluent in French, I mean. What's he going to do with Oh, that's pinch? my I favorite. Mean, I have that in my notes. I, I'm going to talk about that. That's my. That's such a funny, charming... Again, we have a very serious <laughs> story going on. And every very serious story needs to have these really small moments of comedic relief. And I love that uh-huh. Lafayette likes that about him. Like, that has nothing to do with what's happening. It's, it's a useless piece of information right now. Other than maybe mm-hmm. he can fight with the French soldiers a little better. Like, whatever. It's just, like, something endearing to only Lafayette. Like, he's fluent in yeah. French. Like, what the fuck do you send this guy home for? Yeah, I love him. Like, where where has he been? Like, I love this guy. You know, he's yeah. not, he hasn't been around. And, like, I've, I've got nobody to talk to. You don't speak French, which Washington didn't. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, Hamilton was his interpreter with the French. Yeah, sure. And so Hamilton speaking French was a big deal. Hamilton and Lawrence both. And so it really gave him a connection with Lafayette that I think that line, first, it's funny, but it also is a nice tip of the hat to that real history that I just adore. But... Yeah. It's one of those lines that wouldn't be anywhere near the same if it wasn't David Diggs delivering it. It's just like some of Miranda's uh, lines that you have mentioned. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Lafayette's plan. This, this yeah. whole song, it, there's all the bombasticness of this song, and that's like, easy to get caught up in. But this song serves a very important purpose before Yorktown hits here. Um, Lafayette had a plan. Earlier, he only asked for a single ship which is awesome. But now he's come back with guns and ships, plural. So he's like at least doubled what he was going for. Um, so Lafayette's gone. He's got all the French stuff. Washington's like, oh shit, let's rendezvous with Rochambeau. Like we're going to win this. What I love though is it's Lafayette who says we can win this war at Yorktown. Like he is the one, at least in the musical, again, real life, way more complicated. But right now in the musical, Lafayette is out here in his song, in his moment, saying out loud that the plan that will end up winning the war for them. And I really enjoy that in his big moment, that his plan is the one that ends up winning here. I love it too. And I love that we have the triplet of number one is Vicomte de Rochambeau. And then we have Lafayette and then we have Hamilton suggesting that if we're, you know, we're assuming that we're building on things when they come in a progression like that. And so we assume that Rochambeau is important, but then Lafayette's plan is more important and that Rochambeau is part of it. But then the linchpin here is Hamilton because he comes last. Yes. And Washington, like, I want to contrast this to the la- when, Washington, when Washington sent Hamilton away. Because we had a lot of opinions on that. So I think every time we have strong opinions on something, we should revisit them now that we get more information. So so the line here is, the, is from Lafayette. For this to succeed, there is someone else we need. Washington immediately. This is not a pause. Like goes, I know. Like he knows, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Like f- from, from my point of view, and I'd love to hear your point of view on this. I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but when he was sent away, I kind of had this take that was something along the lines of, Washington wants to send him away. He's got this letter, like she's pregnant and he's kind of looking for reasons. And this perfectly lines up with that. Like he, his heart was never fully in it. 
he is soon you can get the sense that as soon as hamilton left washington knew he'd made a mistake here and i, I really like this one line it, it's again lin-manuel miranda is so clever and with how efficient his dialogue is because that one i know not only the line but how how it's placed in the song the speed at which he says it after lafayette says there's someone else we need like he immediately knows who he's talking about and mm-hmm. I, I really like this from Washington because it vibes with what I, at least I perceived earlier as Washington, not really having his whole heart in it when he sent Hamilton away and not really being sure if that, if that was the right move. Although Hamilton did scream in his face. So whatever, like he kind of deserved it, but still. I mean, he deserved to be court-martialed, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's actually coming out way farther ahead than he probably deserved, but that's Absolutely. all right. When's the last time you got extra paid vacation for yelling at your boss? You know what I mean? It's not often. <laughs> this doesn't happen often. Yeah, like, yeah. Now that I'm analyzing it this this way, it does seem like Hamilton got off a little easy. But he, he it's someone else we need. They need him. They need him. He's here. He's our main man. The play is called Hamilton. Uh, we need him. That's a big part of it. There is. Uh, it's it's interesting to analyze Washington here because that reluctance from earlier really is tempered by what I think is fatherly concern for Hamilton that I get from Lynn's performance because I I see him as on the verge of a mental nervous breakdown in that song. I think it's oh, a yeah. really good he's performance. The, he's he's having a problem. He's having a time. He's, yeah. He's having a hard time. I believe I called him a mess of shit. Um, <laughs> he's <laughs> an accurate and so description, to be sure. It's it's a it's an act of pity, and so here, knowing everything that Washington takes into account when he makes these decisions, if you really want to get into the weeds on it, you can think Washington is saying "I know," but then there's a a hesitancy: Is Hamilton ready to come back? Is he able to come back? And is Hamilton mentally capable of taking part in what is going to be a prolonged offensive? And is he capable of actually doing the work? But also, we're lucky. The show has told us that other people do acknowledge Hamilton's fighting ability, right? I know you stole British cannon when we were still downtown. We get a sense of Hamilton's military experience. So it's not unbelievable to us when Washington relents. He never, in the show, Washington never kept Hamilton from leadership because he thought that Hamilton was inept. He kept Hamilton near to him because he was more valuable to the war effort as one of Washington's aide-de-camp. In fact, the show presents Hamilton as Washington's only assistant, right? Which makes him even more important. But he would have been and was very effective on the battlefield. This is one of the most interesting adaptive choices for me, honestly. And because, uh, because of everything surrounding it, it makes it very complex to analyze. Because there's so much going on in Jackson's performance here. In the moment, I think Washington is hard to examine. And I think that this song presents a couple questions that aren't answered until history has its eyes on you. Because I think these songs do function well as a couplet, you know? Absolutely. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if I answered your original question, but yeah. <laughs> but I do. I do think that Washington is the best endorsement that Hamilton could get in the context of the show. He is the venerated Virginian veteran, right? <laughs> He's the one whose opinion we assume matters the most. And if Washington is willing to bring Hamilton back, then that means that that's where destiny needs Hamilton to be right in this moment. And to your point about Washington's, I know Lafayette elaborates. No one has more resilience. No one matches my practical tactical brilliance. I was just going to talk about that line. Yeah. Washington never disagrees with anything Lafayette says. He does not disagree. What I think the, the, Musical does a really good job of framing that because I've always interpreted because in between each of these lines is the company and Washington going Hamilton. Like Lafayette says his piece about how great Hamilton is. And then Washington and the and the ensemble together, like say Hamilton's name over and over and over again. I've always interpreted that as kind of like just being in Washington's head a little bit. Like as Lafayette's describing how good this person is Washington's like confirming it with himself. Like, Oh, that's Hamilton. Like, Oh yeah, that's Hamilton. Oh yeah. Like he's definitely talking about Hamilton. Like, yeah. Hamilton. They're like, dude, I sent away Hamilton. Like, do we, right. Like I've always figured like that was Washington kind of when you, when you commit to a choice, you have to justify it to yourself. And this is kind of him repeatedly justifying it to himself as he's agreeing with Lafayette. Like, okay, you've made a good argument here, sir. Um, I'll bring him back. Also, before we get into Hamilton kind of returning, I'd love that Lafayette is just so like, he's just Lafayette and he's like talking in sports terms. Like, what's he going to do on the bench? Right? Like, mm-hmm. as if this is a basketball game. Like, mm-hmm. we're just, you know, here, play. this is an, this is a freaking war Lafayette. This isn't like pickup football. Like, what? I, I just like that. I like that. It's a subtle nod to a more modern, like he, like Lin-Manuel Miranda knows that more, a more modern audience is watching this. And so little lines like that are a nice nod to like how we view sports now um, mm-hmm. instead of and there would have been no that, that line wouldn't it would have been really weird back in the revolution revolutionary war era. And now it fits seamlessly in here because we're watching this or listening to this in in 2021. Yeah, I was about to think if there was any kind of like connection between the French and tennis, but, you know, at tennis, you only go up to doubles. So you wouldn't right. have anybody on the bench, you know? Yeah, like, it's just a line that makes no sense in the time that the show is yeah. taking place in. But It's but, definitely but because, a contemporary idiom, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it's the creative license Lynn manuel Miranda has, knowing that we're watching this when we are. And I just like that line, because it's a subtle, it's like a subtle nod. The same way I really enjoyed how Bridgerton took, like, real, tw- like, 21st century music and played it on classical instruments, just as a nod. Like, hey, we know. We know who the audience mm-hmm. is. We know you're watching this. This fits perfectly. It doesn't take anything away from it, but just we know you. We get you. And I, I, I've always loved that line for, for that reason. Mm-hmm. The line here that I love is matches my practical tactical yeah, brilliance. Very cocky. Very Hamilton. Uh-huh. Like very, uh-huh. very like up in Hamilton's like level of confidence here, Lafayette is. Yeah, I love it. Now, Lafayette ends up being proven right. There's a lot of Yorktown, a lot of this section is is proving Hamilton and Lafayette both correct. You know, Lafayette's plans and parts of Hamilton's plans, turns out they're vindicated for them because we do get some success coming out of this, right? 
Yeah, Hamilton comes back. So there's a few things to to analyze here. The first is like Hamilton Hamilton wants nothing more in the universe than a command right now. That is his number one priority in his life is he wants a command so he can have status after the war. That is his 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 um it's the it's the vibe he's got going on right now. That is the only thing that he wants. And so he's being offered that by Washington. And the musical does such a good job of bringing Hamilton back in very seamlessly. You almost forget that he's only been gone for one song. Mm-hmm. He has only been gone for like that would be in like one and three quarters of a song before he's back. Yet it feels like he's been gone forever. <laughs> it feels like he's been gone for an eternity. He's been gone for like five minutes. And the way they do that with Washington kind of saying what he's going to put in the letter to Hamilton. Like, there are troops waiting in the field for you. If you join us right now, we can turn the tide. But the way the stagecraft is done, so Eliza's going and grabbing his jacket, and he's, like, getting ready. He's on the stage, so you can see him kind of accepting that responsibility. And I really enjoyed that, because he doesn't... Hamilton isn't on the stage, like, jumping up and down, skipping with glee. He has that, like, serious look to him. Like, oh... I'm getting my command. He takes it seriously. And I, I like the way the stagecraft is done here to tell this portion of the story of how Hamilton comes back. Mm-hmm. It's very clever. The The idea of, you know, it would have been very simple to keep Washington stage left and then have Hamilton and Eliza down right. And then Hamilton could have just crossed over to Washington and that could have been the transition into the office scene. But the revolution of the table around the stage with the letter going around to Hamilton and Eliza. And now by that point, the the revolve has Washington upstage right opposing Eliza and Hamilton downstage left. And then we get the movement again. That is a transition that I probably would not have come up with. And it's just brilliant. You know, it's just really all the all the movement is dynamic but but very very simple and and I just adore it. One thing I want to call out in that production if you're watching the Disney Plus version is Aaron Burr being blocked to stare at Lafayette when he is extolling Hamilton's virtues to Washington and then like just just his eyes are locked on Lafayette and Washington throughout this whole thing. And then when the transition starts his eyes do not leave Washington until the letter gets to him and he has to interact with the rest of the company. No dialogue, no lyrics, but such a performance from Leslie Odom Jr. Because you can see this this simmering envy in him that is just amazing to watch. I don't know if I had ever noticed it before, but now that I've seen it, I can't I can't ever not see it again. There are quite a few prolonged stare usages. And they're they're obviously hard to spot. That's kind of by design, I think, especially if you're watching it live and there's just a lot going on and it's hard. To fir- you only get to watch it live a handful of times if you're lucky, where I'm someone mm-hmm. who's only seen it once, so it's hard to pick up on those. Um, but on the Disney Plus version, there's definitely a few. Um, this one sticks out to me. The other one that's stuck out to me so far up until where we're at is in Satisfied, when Hamilton is blocked to be staring directly at um, Angelica as she's talking about um hamilton at the beginning of that song so it's definitely something lin-manuel uses or whoever does the choreography uses 
to help emphasize it. And it is, is very, very helpful. And it's great because if you notice it, you notice it and it's there. And if you don't, like Burr's character isn't reliant on this one thing that not everyone's going to notice the first time. So it can go right under the radar and you don't have to pick up on it. And I, I like that too, when, when you can just add to a character in a way that if you're not noticing it, then it's not going to take away from your enjoyment of the, the rest of the musical. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. What do there's you a, make? There, oh, sorry. I was just going to say there's a lot of good choreo choices here. Um, you know, I, and I'll just, I'll hit them real quick before we move on to, to what you were about to say. One of my favorites is just the, the general machismo coming back from the tavern and tin duel. You know, we talked about this a little bit with Lafayette earlier, but the ensemble gets it as well. But they also kind of have this bouncy, flowy, more languid, fluid style of movement that is only really present with David. And I think that that fits his lyrical style well. But also, again, I don't know how, how else to put it. It just seems to me to be very, very French. I just love it. Like, it's just this, <laughs> this playful but kind of sexy swagger. Um, and then they also, uh, we rendezvous with Rochambeau, consolidate their gifts. When, they, when Washington says Rochambeau, the ensemble salutes. And I know that Washington has entered the scene here, but they could have saluted Washington at any point, right? They salute on the name Rochambeau. So if you don't know who Rochambeau is, it doesn't matter. Because you can, in the back of your mind, whether you're aware of it or not, you can associate that salute with the name Rochambeau and know that this person is valuable to the war effort. Very efficient choreo, visual storytelling at its finest throughout this show. But this is a, a specific moment I wanted to highlight for its specific efficiency. It's really, really well done. It Hamilton could really you could just pick it like that that's what that's obviously why this is a pop culture phenomenon and, and a musical worth doing a podcast about is because everything is perfect or not like not perfect but like as close to perfect as you can get right mm -hmm. so it, it's not surprising that there's all these great choreo choices because if the if the play had a bunch of bad choreo choices we wouldn't want to do this for two hours every weekend um what I wanted to call out just because we both put it in our notes separately I think it's a huge moment that I certainly didn't pick up on the first time I saw Hamilton um Eliza and the coat huge yeah, moment absolutely uh, yeah I, it for me it's just like acceptance it's it's like I I it's one of those for me Eliza we just kind of had her, our whole thing with Eliza and and now it's kind of like okay I get it you've got to go I think with the letter the letter portrays like a certain confidence that they're going to win now. Like we need Hamilton. And once he arrives, we're winning the war. Right. So I think that allows Eliza to be a little more open to that idea. And he's going to leave. He still hasn't met his son yet. So this has not been a long time. It's been five minutes of playtime later. He's got to got to start a new nation, got to meet his son. So he has not met his son yet. So mm -hmm. Eliza's turned around pretty quickly here to, to being okay with Hamilton leaving again. And he, to his credit, for like two lines later that I'm going to point out, does repay the favor, kind of. So um, what do you make of this Eliza Coat thing? Because I didn't notice it the first time. I, I've noticed it kind of most times since, and it, it's just a really cool moment for me. I think that the tone here is flawless in the choices that they've made. Neither Hamilton nor Eliza are ecstatic. 
not you don't have Eliza just jumping for joy that Hamilton finally got his wish. But in him, you don't see that either. He understands the gravity of the situation here, that he's leaving when he is leaving. But there is an acceptance there. And giving him the coat is a choice. And to me, it approaches signifying that she endorses this choice and supports him. And she's being loving and dutiful. And But at the same time, there is a sadness to her and a sadness to him. And there's this confluence of emotions here that doesn't, to me, feel schizophrenic or confused. It feels like contrasting genuine emotions that can all easily coexist at the same time. This is a complicated moment in their life. And I think that both Lin-Manuel and Philippa need to be commended for communicating those things effectively, silently, and the choice to have her hand him the coat. Because that, you know, and then they embrace. And there's, in all forms of storytelling, when someone sets out on a journey and you give them a gift or you give them a part of the equipage they're taking on this adventure, that's you endorsing the journey. You know, like this isn't this isn't exactly getting the lightsaber from Obi-Wan. I think that's the sword he gets from Washington. Right. But but this is like this is the the village elder giving you your backpack before you go to meet the wise man in the mountains. Right. This is Eliza saying, I support this venture and I understand. And it's done completely without words. And I love it. I love it to death. I just had to go with the word equipage. The equipment for a particular purpose. I've never come across that word in my entire life. Really? Equipage. Never. Never seen it in a book. Never. Never. It's the first time I ever heard it. Interesting. Equipage? Great word choice. It's perfect. Are you, sh- are you sure you're Canadian? Never. I... I my <laughs> Origin. <laughs> origin. Mid-16th century French. What? Yeah, I'm positive. I'm not French from the mid 16th century. Like, oh, I know what equipage means. I'm just trying to be learned, learned, learned. I'm trying to equip myself with the knowledge I need to continue on this podcasting journey with you. It's a great word, Steve. It's it. a Use great it. word. I've it's never heard it in word. my entire life. It's perfect. It's one of my absolute favorites. <laughs> when we do our Hamilton song ranking, we'll also let everyone know where equipage fits in our. In our, in, our, or in our word ranking. Uh, the last thing I want I've, to call out I've, here... I've got, a, I've got a few explicitly like favorite words. Equipage, ambulatory. I mean, I like there's ambulatory. just... Gr- yeah, you don't always get to use yeah. them, but there's some, some great words out there. I might throw me some more of your hits if you have like two or three more. I want to see if I know the rest of them. Uh, let's, uh, let's see. Well, now, now I'm on a... Uh, okay, well, oh, well, you now know you what? put Let, me on we'll, the spot. Sorry, we'll uh, do this later. We'll do this later. This is a tangent we don't need to go on right now. We have pre thermonuclear episodes. Is a okay, lot of fun. I love the rhythm of diligently. It's also just so percussive. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, I could do this forever. All right. Okay, cool. Let's, uh, the last thing I want to call out, I have a rare criticism. I don't normally have criticisms of a Hamilton. It bothers me more and more every single time I watch this, this musical. And you pointed out, I, I, I sarcastically put in the comments, like, why is Bullet Girl... <laughs> The only one whose coat doesn't have sleeves. It bothers me every time. And then you put... And I wrote... It's so you notice her and notice that she's different, Bradley. And apparently it worked. 
So as a first time <laughs> viewer on Disney Plus, it is very helpful because the bullet girl thing we talked about is happening and you need to know she's different, right? And it is hard the first time to keep track of it all. But once you understand that the bullet girl thing is happening, this just looks like the costuming went wrong, right? Once you know that she's different, it's hard to remember the first time. And now it just feels like she got the wrong coat. I don't know. I, I get why the costuming is the way it is. But as soon as you know what's going on, Upon rewatch, like some things when you rewatch anything or reread anything, some parts of it get better, some parts of it get worse, some characters change. For me, this bit of costuming always trends downward for me. Mm, if you're mm -hmm. if you're not getting the bullet girl thing from the actual bullet girl parts of this, like her being murdered, her moving the bullet over his head, then this costuming choice that doesn't really feel like it fits, if that if this is the one thing that the whole thing is hinging on, then it kind of just looks like a bad costuming like something went wrong. Like it's not, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's not a, it's just a small nitpick. And I think it's helpful for viewers until they realize the bullet girl thing. But once you realize it, you have all the actual bullet girl clues that I, I don't enjoy this choice. And I think since we talk so positively about all the choices we do enjoy, I do want to point out some of the ones smaller otherwise that I think don't hit the mark. And I think this one misses the mark slightly, although perfectly understandable choice. I think it's important for us to do that because there are some things that just take you out of the show. And if it does, it's worth objectively critiquing those things and thinking, why does this, why does this do this to me as a viewer? And you can objectively understand the function of anything in a piece of work and subjectively just not like it. And being able to discern between those two things is important to any kind of critical analysis. It really is. So I commend you for bringing it up. And, you know, I just like I uh, brought up my correct analysis of <laughs> flotilla versus battalion. And so I am I am not alleging that her identity as the bullet and 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 seeing her as that in this moment pivots around lacking the sleeves i am saying it is important for costumes and hmu to be consistent with keeping her unique throughout now that she has taken on the role of the bullet when it is necessary to do so Later on, when she's alone with Lawrence, and she's she's the only non-Lawrence person in that scene, when she, like, they kill the guy together, and then we have the moment of just her and Lawrence together, she doesn't need a non-sleeve coat. Because when she's just with Lawrence, we've got her hair, we see it's just the two of them, we see her, it's easier to realize that she's there. But here, we do need a little extra salt on being able to make sure we notice it's her, and she's different. Now, here's the thing. What I like about your argument is that it does connect to what you were saying about Burr and the stairs. They could have had her in the same coat and her as the bullet here be a little extra flavoring for those that notice it. But if you don't notice it, if you don't know that the bullet is right where she is, it really doesn't detract from this moment. The, this moment is still good 
if she was in the back of the line and she wasn't in focus, I just think that her being in focus makes like ratchets up the drama, right? But that hinges on you understanding what the bullet is. So yeah, I, I think my overall analysis yeah. is I, I like the choice to make her different. I like the choice to to give the audience as many tools as possible to pick up mm-hmm. on the bullet theme with her. I don't like the choice of the sleeves. If yeah, it could have been I think like you were you were talking about like the boots that Lafayette yeah. or that Laura, that Lawrence and Hamilton have, maybe a hat. Like I'm not the, the critical part here is not the choice to make her different. I think For that's sure. important. It's just the sleeve part of it. It looks like it doesn't come across as oh she's different. It comes across as oh the costume person fucked up. To me, yeah. to me that's how it comes what it, across. What it sounds like I'm hearing from you, if I may, and you're you're talking about the tools they're using to tell the story. It's like they they reached for the sledgehammer here when a claw hammer would have done well enough. You know, maybe they could have given her sleeves, but she could have cuffed her sleeves, just rolled them up maybe three-quarter length, and had a difference from everybody else, but a more subtle difference. Yeah, it's maybe- the subtlety that 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 I just I look at it and I go, oh, the costumer messed up before I go, oh, she's different. And that's mm-hmm. that's where my analysis is. Like I just look at it as a costuming mistake. And if you look at it that way, you'll never even realize why it was done, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's not a huge I, deal. It's just a small thing. I know, but it's it's still worth discussing, right? Anything that we bump on is worth discussing because we are talking about this as a show that is exceptionally well done and critically acclaimed for how well it is done right so when there's things that we whinge about like they're worth discussing because they don't fall in line with our otherwise laudable opinion of the show i fall (laughs) back i fall back on my opinion of or my my theory that when you are producing at this level and you have this amount of time to develop and create a show no one has made a mistake. At, at this point in the game, when we're seeing the show, there may have been choices made that we disagree with, but there are no, there are no mistakes made, Correct. right? No one yeah, forgot this is anything. No, no one, yeah. Yeah. yeah this yeah, isn't actually yeah. a costumer messing up. This is the real choice. Yeah, this right. is the real choice, yeah. right? And it's intentional. So like it's, you know, I can look at it and go, I know this is intentional. I understand what they're doing creatively, but I still don't like it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think that it's important for us to have those discussions for sure. Um, it, is, it is a big choice to just not have sleeves, uh, like in the context it of unity. and every out. Yeah, it, it really does. noticeable. Right, and it stands out in a way that her other moments don't because often with the bullet, we have some real subtlety, you know? This is yeah, pretty, I, yeah. Yeah, it's all it's all subtle. Like you, because Hamilton goes on whether you notice the bullet or not. The mm-hmm. bullet is like a fun side quest for you to do if you're watching it multiple times. I don't think it's designed for for like first time viewers to understand the story. It's just like a cool choice that if she's interacting with you, you're probably gonna die, right? Like that's a <laughs> it's a fun little thing. Right. Maybe that's what maybe it's not even the sleeves. It's that it's the only choice with her character that's not subtle. Maybe that's the thing. I don't know. We mm-hmm. need to linger on it too long. Maybe that's what it is. It doesn't bother me too much. It's not like oh Hamilton was a ten out of ten, but now it's a nine because of the sleeves. Ugh. It's just a small <laughs> it's just a small thing to to bring up on the way to to wherever we're going here. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Uh. <laughs> what? That's that's not, if I'm writing a Metacritic review, I'm not putting the sleeves in that review. I'm not gonna go. Hamilton's <laughs> great, but the sleeves. Like that's not my that's not my review. <laughs> it would have been rated certified juicy, but then they cut those sleeves off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hamilton, great play, but the sleeves don't even buy a ticket. That's fine. All right. Let's move on. History has its eyes on you. We're good to go. Let's Any- let's go. We are here now with History Has Its Eyes on You. It is nice to see Washington and Hamilton back together. But before we really dive into the the characters or the plot, I want to talk about how well this song functions as a storytelling song and, and how this one kind of fits in, not just with Hamilton, but this is one of those songs that that really has an existential kind of quality to it that's very common in all of the most popular and in some of the best stories out there. And the line the line that does it is, you have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. The the lesson in the in the musical is obviously between the characters in the musical, but what it's telling you, what it's asking you to think about is more of an existential question because in real life we have no control who lives who dies who tells our story and so it it really brings together the musical and real life and and engages you as the viewer and so many of of the best stories out there and some of the most popular stories do this to an effect they they challenge you to either compare your real life to what's happening in, in the the art that you're you're watching or looking at or reading or they challenge you um, to to relate uh, to to what's happening with the the characters. So, for instance, in Harry Potter, one of the big running themes of that book series is that these people are fucking magical. They can do magic, and yet they have all the same problems we do. And that's a very existential quality to that story that really helps take it from just a good story to where it sits in like the pop culture lexicon if you will and game of thrones is an example of a show that constantly questions your morality and compares your life to what you're watching we open spoilers for episode one of game of thrones like go ahead like a minute if you don't want to hear this we open with ned stark beheading somebody for committing a crime and in real life if justin trudeau i'm canadian by the way if you guys listening didn't know this but like or joe biden or whoever pick a leader um <laughs> right, if they if they beheaded somebody as a form of justice even if they were guilty and like the penalty was death we'd all like scream out in horror at what's happening but yet when we watch it on game of thrones the way that scene is portrayed is like oh this is what the noble ned stark is doing ned stark is the best of the best in terms of nobility and honor and he's giving this guy a proper death Right, And so you're immediately in scene number two of Game of Thrones questioning your own morality watching it. And so getting back to Hamilton, that one line, you have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. It's one of those lines that supersedes the musical. 
it's happening within the characters in the musical, but it's kind of happening at you as something that the the musical wants you to leave with to kind of take into the world with you. And it kind of it's a line that comes outside of the story we're we're watching or listening to and becomes part of our real life. And I love when that happens in, in stories because it's very very important in, in terms of how we feel about the stories and how we c- kind of compare. Every time we watch Hamilton, we have we have different opinions on it. So how we kind of move forward and compare to what we previously thought. It's lines like this that, that really help with that. That was perfectly well done, Bradley. Sorry, that was a long-winded thing, but no, that's how I'm I feel serious. about this song. No, that was really that was really well well put. And I, I think, yeah, that was that was amazingly well done, Bradley. And I, I enjoyed your insight on that. So Yorktown? No. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're done. We're moving on. Uh there is something interesting about this line in the context of the fact that it is a biography and that it was inspired by another biography. I think that it's wise to have an examination of this thought in the text of the play because all of the questions that are asked that you mentioned earlier in part one of this episode inspired Ron Chernow and then later Lynn to tell Hamilton's story. This line and all of its existential weight that you just mentioned, it's doubling down, I think, on the idea that these questions will be answered. We're going to see who tells Hamilton's story, and we're going to see why. We're going to see why they chose to tell his story. Because I think part of Washington's challenge to Hamilton and part of him saying this, there's an implication that if you if you are not worthy of having your story be told, no one will tell it. And and I love that secondary to that implication is Washington saying, uh, youthfully and foolishly, dreaming of glory is not the way to get your story told. You know. What gets your story told is responsibility and honor and being stately. And and I think that there's power in that. I think that there is this, this examination of who tells your story. There's also a suggestion from Washington that if you behave honorably, your story will get told. And I think that that does, like, like you... Like like you said, it does come out of the show. It inspires us that we should also examine who's going to tell our story. Are we living right? Are we living properly? Yeah, it's who's going to tell our story and what are they going to say? Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. what is going to be in the story is equally as important. And this line, again, like bringing it out of like there's like three three degrees of separation here. I'm going to bring it out of the play, but not into my life. The real life Alexander Hamilton did all of these things, give or take a little bit of historical kind of maneuvering to make the the musical work, right? And yet he had no control hundreds of years ago over who was going to tell his story. In fact, he's really lucky that it was Ron Chernow and Lin-Manuel Miranda because his story ended up being told perfectly and now he's really famous. 
right? Mm-hmm. But it took hundreds of years. Like even e- Hamilton in real life did all these things and it still took hundreds of years. And accidentally it happened to be like two really smart, qualified people to tell his story, <laughs> right? But even he in real life had no control. Like he was the 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 forgotten founding father is, is kind of what they go over at the end of this musical. And so it didn't even matter in real life because no one told his story forever and ever and ever until we're getting our hands on it right now. And so even if you do all these things, there's no guarantee that anyone will tell your story like Hamilton who waited forever. So I, I there's like there's so many degrees of separation here and that's why this line is so good to me because it just hits all of the marks no matter how you think about it. Yeah, I think prior to this, I mean his biggest pop culture exposure was getting name dropped in season 1 of The Wire and and that's about <laughs> it. Yeah. Although that's, like that's yeah. pretty good though because that is the single greatest television drama ever made so there is that but still oh, like this it's is not an argument we're getting into another time but okay fine fine but it's not you know that's not like having your own biography and musical right sure, um, absolutely but yeah i really do think that washington here is channeling not only what washington the character feels but he is channeling lin-manuel miranda's thoughts about representation and memory and what you do to earn it right and i think that these heady thoughts and much like that would be enough here we have another virtuoso performance of a technically simple song but a mentally philosophically very sophisticated song and much like philippa sue did with enough I think it's largely credit to Christopher Jackson that takes people like you into the place of being very theoretical and existential with this song and being able to accept what it's saying in a theoretical space. Because I think his performance here is grounded in humanity, but lofty enough to enable thoughts that go far beyond the page, right? And and go into the heart and go into psychology. And I think that your thoughts on this song and what what you shared earlier i think are truly a credit to his performance because i think it's it's so moving and it does a lot to get these thoughts off the page and make you wonder about that all that you know it's a it really is a majestic and powerful performance here in my opinion his performance is excellent like everyone else in hamilton his performance is absolutely mind-bogglingly incredible there's not a negative thing i could say about the performance so that's absolutely a part of it it's hard to even digest how much of the performance is what resonates with me just because it's so good i can't even pull it apart from the from the text um because i've only ever seen hamilton once without christopher jackson right so i I don't know kind of how i feel about it if i could watch it again with someone else but his performance here is incredible and he gets saddled like at least Ham- Hamilton and Eliza have a few of these songs, but he mostly like Christopher Jackson most of mostly gets saddled with some of these. Like the whole um, "Under My Own Vine and Fig Tree" bit is more of the same kind of like. There's not a lot going on. It's just kind of him singing, and he nails it. Like he doesn't have a lot to work with here in terms of choreography or props or lights or the ensemble dancing around him, and yet he makes so much of what he does get. Hmm. Well, and Washington wasn't given much either, and he made the best of what he got. 
you know, I, I think that there's a, a meta textual thing going on there. And Washington, we imagine him as being stately and regimented. You know, when, when the show starts, uh, Washington, like, is really the only American veteran that we're exposed to. And so he is the, the persona of the army in this show. He's, he's the avatar for the American military experience. And so he's regimented, formal stately, majestic, powerful. And his lines are written this way too. He doesn't have the multiple internal rhymes that other characters get. He does not have the Buster Rhymes or DMX-like uh, quality that Hercules Mulligan gets, right? He's, he's you know, I, I think I may have said it already, but he's more like Martin Sheen meets Common. You know, it's just very, <laughs> it's very simple, secure, and strong. And I think that he nails it. I think he absolutely nails it. Yeah, in terms of uh, story substance here, it's a pretty simple, it's pretty simple what's happening here. Washington is going to give Hamilton his command. He's still a little unsure about it. So I think in the musical verse here, he needs, he feels the need to impart like a good father figure would before Hamilton takes up this responsibility, also taking it up in the decisive battle, at least in this timeline, Hamilton is taking up this responsibility in the decisive battle, in the last one. So he is kind of not, he's going right into the the, the belly of the beast here with this. And so he feels the need to, to give Hamilton the advice that he has. He's felt shame. He's made every mistake. He's witnessed the deaths of his fellow soldiers that he that died under his command. And he's trying, at least my interpretation is generally, he's just trying to tell Hamilton, like, be careful here. You're getting what you want. You could be so good at it. I know that we can win. I know that greatness lies in you. But remember, just keep in mind, history has its eyes on you. What you do mm -hmm. from here will be recorded and talked about, so don't fuck it up. It's kind yep. of the warning that he's giving. And that it's a short song to pretty much do all that. And I'm glad we've actually been able to talk so much about it because it is, in terms of words, can't be more than 100 words, 150 words. Like, it's not a lot. Um, but what it does do is it, it gives Washington the chance to be this fatherly figure and give Hamilton the, the kind of affirmation, but the caution he needs to, to succeed in, in, the, in the defining battle ahead. Yeah, imagine how differently Hamilton might have behaved if Washington had had the gumption to say all this shit earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that was one of your notes that I really liked. Like, why didn't we just have this earlier? Like, why couldn't we have started with this? I think this is a direct result of him giving the command, right? So I think if he had been given a command earlier, I think this might have happened. But yeah, I agree. Like, come on, why? You oh, I agree. This, that's you could have done this. That's a little me earlier, being maybe. a little bit cheeky to a point. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, like come on, Washington. He, he yelled in your face. This is that was a good time for this too. Yeah, that would have been a fine time for this. This is possibly one of my favorite adaptive choices in this show because it does a lot to make Hamilton the protagonist and our hero and us remain in Hamilton's team, right? This is this is one of the choices that they made that make that keeps Hamilton our hero, the audience's hero because Hamilton was never fired. He quit. And then while he, while he would like, after he resigned as secretary, he kept begging for a, a commission 
Like he he was pestering Washington time and time and time and time and time again to to get a troop to lead, and he just wouldn't let Washington alone. And then he finally got a light infantry battalion before Yorktown because they needed him. But like this, <laughs> this makes Hamilton look so much better. It's one oh, of yeah. my favorite adaptive choices in the show because it makes the narrative so much better, right? I mean, uh, in 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 reality, Hamilton was impetuous, quit, and then started whining and begging Washington personally for a command. He even. He rented rooms across the street from Washington when they were in, when they were camped in either Albany or Philadelphia, and he would hand courier letters across the street to Washington asking for commissions. Like, it's just, he was insufferable. And this here. Yeah, man, you got to respect the game, right? Respect the hustle of of Allie Hamilton over here. That's what I'm saying, man. Uh, but yeah, it's just, this is a really good, like the momentum of this, the momentum of needing Hamilton, of him being the hero here, and of Washington giving him this impassioned speech about nobility just makes for just such a better musical and such a more sympathetic uh, protagonist, right? And it really catapults us into Yorktown in a more emotional way. And also just gives Christopher Jackson an opportunity to just totally own the stage and our hearts. Yes, I agree with all of that. Christopher Jackson is incredible. I, I don't have anything. Else. I honestly, I, I think my, my big, my big point to hit with this one was just the existential nature of why I loved it so much. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise I think it, I think that's all that I, that I've got for despite how good his performance is. It is a, it is a short song. And I, I think that's all that I've kind of got. Absolutely. Uh, I am, I'm very comfortable moving straight into Yorktown, but if only quickly, though, to call out the sword here, replacing oh, the pin Oh, I can't believe I forgot earlier. this. Yeah, the sword is important. I put it in my notes, too. Yeah, yeah I, the sword is important. It's, this is, like, really important. You know, once again, we have a, uh, we have Washington handing him an actual, literal, tangible prop, right? And it is it is an officer's saber, so we see th- that his office has changed. He is no longer the aide-de-camp. He is now leading men with a saber. And this may be conjecture on my part. This may be just what I am bringing to the show. But I think that I, I really like the, the nod here to Chernow and his biography, intentional or not. I think it was intentional because the show was based on the fact that Lynn read the biography on vacation. There's a chapter called The Pen and the Sword about part of Hamilton's military career. And I like that earlier we saw the pen and now we see the sword. And I would have been disappointed to have one without the other. I think it's really cute. I like it a lot. (laughs) I, again, agree with all of that. I always took it as a nod. So that's a lie. I didn't always take it that way. Once I read the biography, I took it as a nod to that. But it also functions like just as an easy way to keep track of what Hamilton is doing. Right? Mm-hmm. Like earlier, he declines two writing jobs. Take up a writing job. And you know that because he gets a quill. And now he's going to go fight a bit. So he gets a sword. Like I think it's just a very simple, easy way. If you're not doing any kind of actual analysis of it and you're just watching and you're just like, oh yeah, he's got a sword now, he's gonna go fight, he's got a quill, he's gonna go right. Like I think it's just helpful in that way too. Yeah. 
I love it. So now that we've given the sword its love, shall we fast forward to 1781, the Battle of Yorktown? Yorktown, baby. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So before we get started with Yorktown here, I have a little bit of a thing just as a non-American that I would like to talk about here. Just as my perception as someone who is not American, who's not as caught up with American history, kind of watching Hamilton for the first time. So I, I happened accidentally, and I don't even remember why, I happened to know that Yorktown and York City are different places. York City, New York, is the New York of now. But Yorktown is actually in Virginia, where this battle takes place. And I think I knew that from just watching some kind of American revolutionary history documentary or something. So I knew that coming into Hamilton. But just as a note, I just want to shout out all my other non-American friends that it's totally okay. And I completely forgive you if you think this battle happened in New York. Because that's what most of us would think. Just just seeing the Yorktown, we would assume that's New York and not some random place in Virginia. I just want to call that out. That for any of you non-Americans listening to this, I feel you, I get the struggle, that this is not happening in New York, that this is happening in Virginia, and if you're fighting, finding this out for the first time, there you are. <laughs> Sorry. I assume you always knew Yorktown was in Virginia. I assume as an American, that's like a, it's a fact that people know. I had no idea until I... If you had just said, like, the Battle of Yorktown, had I not known that, I would have 100% assumed New York. Because Yorktown and York... Yorktown and York City, all these words, like it's not called New York in any of these documentaries. It's called York City. So it's really easy to confuse with Yorktown. And you, it's, I'm 100% sure most non-Americans would assume this was New York. I have never seen New York listed as York City. Like New York City, sure, but usually just New York. I've never seen just York City. How very Oh, there's loads of doc- documentaries on this period um that they call it york city and then the most recent one i've watched um turn washington spies is also they call it york city almost the entire huh. time they might call it new How york once or twice but yeah, yeah yeah we would just we would just hear the word yorktown and assume new york is where this is yeah happening. gotcha makes sense i mean i've only ever seen new amsterdam or new york so hmm. right yeah i just wanted to call out the non-americans who may have been confused as to where this battle is happening because it's happening in virginia and not in new york it is, yeah, and for and for more like geographical reference, uh, Virginia is on the eastern seaboard of the United States, and it's one of the northernmost southern states. If <laughs> yeah, makes sense. it's kind of like one of those states that if you're in the north, you call it the south. If you're in the south, you call it the north. But it's kind of not. No, no, Virginia is very much the south. Absolutely, yeah, Virginia is in no way the north. Um, it's just the the northernmost part of the South, but Virginia, in its character and its its traits, like it is very much a Southern state. Full stop. Okay, yeah, cool. That's a absolutely. good little bit of information. That's also where Washington D.C. is. For those of you non-Americans who might not know that either, um, Washington D.C. is in Virginia, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Um, in fact, you know, Washington D.C. The District of Columbia and Arlington, Virginia, are almost the the same city. They're just right across the the Potomac. Anyway, we're yeah, I'm digressing. Um, but I, but I think it's beneficial for people. You know, I don't expect everybody to have you know in their memory 
the the map of the United States. So yeah, I just want to call it out because this song does nothing to help you. This song does not give you any hint about where this battle is happening if you're not familiar. Like, if you're not familiar with basic U.S. geography, anyway. Um, same with a Potomac call out later when when Hercules Mulligan says like I'll propose the Potomac. That sounds like medicine to non-Americans. Like what's the fuck's the Potomac? <laughs> like, that's not, I used we to... don't we don't know that's a river. It sounds like cold medication. So it's like you just I... have to call these out when they're, the play yeah. doesn't help you because there are people who might not know that Yorktown is not New York. I actually used to play trombone and propose the Potomac. We we're a great ska band, man. We were awesome. We were so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a cool band name as well. Proposed yeah, it's a great band name. But yeah, it is It is interesting that, you know, Virginia is uh, so close to Maryland and Maryland is very much a northern state. Like that line, that cultural delineation between Virginia and Maryland is is stark. Yeah. Um, and oddly, like there are parts of Pennsylvania that feel much more southern than the rest of New England. But, you know, I digress. All right, we got the geography down. I will bring it up again when we get to the Potomac reference whenever that happens in whichever episode. But we're here. I have a hot take coming out of the gate about Yorktown. First off, fantastic song. Amazing, incredible, all of it. Definitely one of the more flashy performances. Not a Mm -hmm. lot of meat on the bones in terms of like deep character work here. Just like an all out everyone it's kind of like the the song in hamilton where everyone just gets to be like an absolute boss the actors get to have a lot of fun the ensemble gets to have a lot of fun the lighting guys the sound guys like everyone this they get to have a lot of fun in in yorktown i think that and my opinion on the song has changed dramatically over time but i Hmm. think in the initial run of this musical yorktown this is just me with my minimal knowledge about any of this I think Yorktown probably did the most out of any song in this musical to take Hamilton from just a, a really amazing musical to just the pop culture phenomenon that it became. And I have a few reasons as to why, but that's my take, is that this was the song that that really initially, like once people had seen it, it, it kind of goes down a little bit. But I think just that initial run to 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 make it the pop culture phenomenon, I think this was the song that did the most to do that for a variety of reasons that we'll talk about. That is interesting to me. And I look forward to hearing more about it. All right, let's do it. I'll just dive right in. First off. Yeah, I, I, I really, I really do want you to, because I've so, because my, and my uh, God, I feel like Kanye, I'm gonna let you finish. Um, because my, <laughs> my initial idea, right. Is that I think that it is, I think it's my shot that did the heavy lifting on publicity for Hamilton. But also I feel like what people respond to when they hashtag my shot and call that out, what I actually think they're responding to emotionally is the reprisal of my shot within Yorktown. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing if that's something that you reference as you go off here a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to start with like the main reasons. There are a few mixed in. First off is people already come into this musical knowing that the Americans are going to win, right? Obviously, we've talked about that just this episode. So as someone mm-hmm. who knew that was going to happen, when you are watching this for the first time, and this is my, my take is strictly for people watching it for the first time and then spreading it word of mouth. That is it. That is my, this take only extends as far as you've seen it once and you've talked to your friends and like, hey, 
I've got to go see this musical or you've got to go see it. Like that's where my take ends is after that point. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I watched Hamilton for the first time, and this is complete small sample size, just my own experience, Yorktown was easily the most memorable song. Not that it's the best, not that it's the it's certainly not the best in terms of any specific character performances, and except for Hercules Mulligan, right? Like Satisfied has a better character performances. Leslie Odom Jr. is better in almost every song that he has, right? But what Yorktown does is it just blasts you with the best of what a musical can be. In terms of if you're not like super familiar with musicals, you don't go to them all the time and you, you go and you're like, oh, I'm just gonna go some opera bullshit today. Yorktown is the song that's like, holy shit. Like this is the peak of the, like the visual and audio experience of what I'm watching. It's just, it's like watching the big lightsaber battle in Star Wars, right? That's not mm -hmm. the part of the story that has the most character work. It's just two people hitting each other with lightsabers, but it's the, it's kind of the peak experience of watching it for the first time and so watching hamilton for the first time i walked out of the theater and my most memorable and favorite moment by a long shot was yorktown because i already knew what was going to happen i didn't need to be introduced to new characters like when you watch satisfied for the first time you actually have to pay attention to what angelica's saying because she's telling you things about her and the story and the other characters and so you can kind of get lost in that. But this, since I knew they already won at Yorktown, I just got to sit back, relax, and, and just completely enjoy it. And my recommendation to other people after seeing it for the first time was based on like how much I loved Yorktown. I was like, Yorktown was incredible. You've got to go see this musical. That's, that's my first reason. What do you make of that reason? Here's what I make of that. I, I, I make of it that you are hitting on something that is rightly or wrongly central and primal to American theater and has been for several years. When people talk about Phantom, oh, yeah, they yeah. talk about the chandelier. Sure. Yeah. When people, that's the show uh, as a child that, that made me want to do this, by the way, uh, Phantom of the Opera can't i can barely stand it now but it was, <laughs> at the time it was, it was cool again our opinions it was, change this is not how i they feel do, now they about do. yorktown this is just how i yeah. felt at the time first view right right but yeah but as it, i mean that was it was it's one of those magical moments i'll never forget it i'll never forget the chandelier uh in phantom of the opera when people talk about les mis they talk about the battle of the barricade and when they talk about Lion King, they talk about the sun rising and they talk about the elephants walking through the audience and up onto the stage. There is power in spectacle. And I do not think that there is anything wrong with this. I think that spectacle is necessary for storytelling. And I want it to continue being necessary because I am one of the people that creates spectacle for the stage and I would like to work again, right? But there <laughs> is there is something a, it's engaging. It's a good reason. When you, you know, for me, you know, take Le, uh, take Le Miz, for example, the most engaging moment for me in that show is One Day More. And it's just the vocal arrangements in One Day More that are just amazing. But oh, when you One Day More is incredible. Empty it chairs is. at empty chairs at empty tables makes me cry every time. Anyways, this is we'll do a Les Mis podcast another day. But yeah, you know, I, I I get so much crap for loving Eddie Redmayne's performance of that in the movie, but I'm like, I'm solid. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's solid. not my favorite, it's, but it's very good. 
It is. He's a good, and also, you know, puffs stand together, man. Uh, so, <laughs> but you know, when you talk about Les Mis and you're talking about the experience of seeing it live, a lot of people talk about the Battle of the Barricade. And I do think that Hamilton had a lot of work to do building on the legacy of Broadway to have at least one big, bold spectacle moment. And they have it here with Yorktown. I commend Hamilton for its big spectacle moment being maybe 16, maybe 32 bars of music. It's tiny. Yorktown is actually very, very short. Like the actual battle sequence, the spectacle, everything that's going on there is actually very lean and efficient. Oh, it's it's yeah. Like I said earlier, it's not a meaty song. It, it uh-huh. really is. A, it it's efficient in what it does, yeah. right? But it, it's a it's a battle song. They're battling. Like there's not a ton of of deep emotional character work here. There's some of it, and we'll talk about it. But it's like it's just all like for me. It's the spectacle that makes the song amazing. And spectacle's the easiest to attach yourself to on your on a first viewing. And that's that's where that that comes from. Is that I was just blown away that Yorktown could happen. As a as yeah. an arrangement that the lighting and the audio and the acting and the props and the dancing and the ensemble could all even create this. Now, when you watch yeah. it multiple times, you get used to it. You you forget what it was like to watch it the first time. But I left Hamilton like just head over heels in love with Yorktown as a performance, way above Absolutely. any other performance in in the musical. Yeah, it's similar to uh, you know after after watching Wicked and seeing Defying Gravity for the first time. It's just you're trying to figure out, like, this is possible. Like, what I just saw is possible. And that is to be commended. And I do I do think, yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from, that, like, all of this adds up to you've got to see this show because of Yorktown. Like, this is just amazing. And I think that it did do a lot to popularize the show because of that. Now, that being said, I also want to to suggest not necessarily contradicting your point but just adding to it i agree with all of that and i know i know you're loaded i know you're fully loaded you've got more barrels you're ready to go you've got more (laughs) points as to why this is the thing but i'm curious to know if one of your points is like towards making the show uh, the cultural phenomenon that it is have you considered immigrants we get the job done that's the next point that's my next oh, point well that's my next okay one. that's i love it, you too it is fundamental <laughs> to what made hamilton popular because the moment hamilton was created and produced in socially culturally was like lightning in a bottle this musical touches on immigration in a in a very powerful way considering how far and this is like getting into my own personal political stuff so i'm sorry if you don't like me or whatever whatever is fine uh how far and it's not just america and it's wait it's, hey hang, hang on bradley i think that if someone is not interested in political discussions they shouldn't be listening to a podcast about fucking hamilton sure right? that's true right but like right. i just want to i just want to separate this is where i'm not analyzing the play i'm analyzing my own political views right i'm just saying like yeah no disrespect to the audience, but if you're if you're watching a biography of a music of a, of a political figure 
where you're listening to a discussion about a biography of a political figure, then you're going to have to digest some politics. <laughs> and if you and I don't bring our personal politics into it, then we're devaluing what we can bring to that discussion. So I, I am just saying, I know that like I'm biased because I like you a little bit. I tolerate you as much <laughs> as I can, but like you shouldn't, you shouldn't apologize for bringing your politics into this because it's, it's a valuable asset to you in this discussion is all, right. is all I'm saying. Apology rescinded. I think, Excellent. I think Yorktown and the way it tackles immigration uh, you know, you get it throughout Hamilton. There's a lot of, of chat about Hamilton being an immigrant. A lot of it's Burr, like, trying to take a dump on him <laughs> by saying he's an immigrant. But, like, you, it's very, like, the play wants you to know that Hamilton is an immigrant. Like, a, the Lim Memo really wants you to know that. At the cultural moment we are currently in now and where we were when Hamilton released, and, it, again, I don't want to pick on America. It's not just America. It's a whole worldwide thing. We've We've really lost our way in terms of how we view immigration to the success of our society. America and Canada, the, the two countries we're both from, so I'll, I'll stick with those two, are successful and vibrant and beacons throughout the world of, of hopeful uh, places to live, right? Because of immigrants, right? Like, I know there's a lot of talk in the news right now about an immigration crisis at the border. Think of, if you reverse, if you frame that differently, why do so many people want to come to America? Because America understands the value of immigrants, because America provides a better life for them. They're not doing it for like any freaking weird kind of strange bullshit. They're trying to have a better life. And America was an early adopter of a society that was made better because of immigrants like the statue it's the statue of liberty like symbols are important and the way people act is important and i think culturally the way that we deal with immigrants has been completely lost in terms of how how successful our societies are has been almost solely because of the um, the way immigration has been embraced in such uh um in such a positive way and the the image in Hamilton at the time where immigration is more contentious than ever the image of Hamilton of two people of color standing on the stage acknowledging that they're immigrants high-fiving and saying they get the job done is as powerful of a symbol or an image or whatever that you can possibly have in this musical but also when you consider when this musical came out it's just lightning in a bottle and that's you can't separate Hamilton from immigration and you can't separate immigration from the time when this musical was released. And it just all came together. And it's it's the most powerful moment in the play, probably in terms of the cultural resonance of it. It is absolutely is absolutely a fundamental part of why Hamilton is as popular as it is. And I, I just I think it's important to call that out, considering that we i think i think we've really lost our way in terms of how we we value the the topic of immigration so um the the image here is extremely powerful i agree i think that was eloquently uh, very well put i commend you for it i think that we are tr we are starting to recenter ourselves in terms of immigration but it's complicated by the fact that part of our ability to take people in is man it's complicated by covid right now like it really sure, is. Sure, there's a lot of you external know? factors. 
There's a right, lot, but to, it's not. There's also my 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 bigger point though was like in our politics, in your politics, in a lot of European country politics. There's a lot of like it's a it's a rising populist idea that immigration is bad and that we should yeah allow yeah yeah immig- like that's more what I like COVID is COVID and that sucks right now right but this has been going on for like it's a rising movement throughout the world in democratic countries that immigration is bad and terrible and these are people coming to what did Donald Trump say like kill and rape you or whatever like that yeah. is the part to me where they're bringing the, they're bringing the their rapists they're bringing their murderers yeah yeah you know right. yeah I mean that's uh you know, uh, I, I respect your interjection there. Um, I was, uh, I do, uh, but I was, I was trying to get to, you know, understanding like the, the difficulties we're having now kind of make sense during the extenuating circumstances, but, but yeah, what you're saying the past four years, uh, in, in America, we, we've had issues not because of logistics and not because of disease, but because of a, too masculine sense of uber nationalism and xenophobia and and having to other immigrants and blame them for our problems right because you have to have an enemy if you want to succeed if you don't have anything substantial to say yourself right if you can if you can find an enemy to blame on uh, blame everything on then you can say well we can fix it if we remove the other which you know right. is problematic because that just takes us straight back to 1933. Okay, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Hercules Mulligan was Irish. Rochambeau and Lafayette were French. Uh, also, you have uh, the uh, the German contingent of the American army. Uh, led by uh, von Steuben, who probably wasn't actually a baron, but he was definitely German. Um, and Hamilton himself was from uh, 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 he was he was an immigrant as well. I mean, he was from Saint Croix. He was born a British citizen, um, and then like he and and also Hamilton and this also goes into the, the people pushing back on the casting of this play Hamilton wasn't white like I'm sorry like his mother was was uh was half black Hamilton was either a quadroon or an octoroon we don't know Hamilton was not white one of our founding fathers was a man of color and this show and its focus on people of color and its focus on immigrants, I believe, uh, I think the way Lin-Manuel put it was, uh, this is America now telling the story of America then? Correct, that's exactly and if you were, it. If you were to tell this story, if you were to put this stage on play, uh, this play on stage, <laughs> right? And the, and, the, and the cast is full of white people, it would feel so inauthentic like it would self-congratulatory feel so like very yeah yeah like oh good job all the white people did well like, yeah like the yeah play it is would immeasurably better for the 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 cast of of people of different nationalities and backgrounds and skin tones and right. like, it, it makes it so like that's what i'm saying is that's that's part of the reason why this is a pop culture phenomenon and not just another musical that people enjoy absolutely yeah and it's just you you really got to understand like the the way people were moving around uh, 
throughout the colonies and uh, home countries at this point, like the world was a lot more cosmopolitan than we give it credit for. And we do have monuments to whiteness in the founding fathers. George Washington, pretty white and pretty typical white Southern. Like we, in this show, we're going to talk about this later in Yorktown with uh, people wondering if this really means freedom. Not yet. We get a pretty idyllic vision of the revolution itself and the revolutionaries behind it. Washington in this show, I think, is presented as Washington as we need him to be for this show. But we also understand that he was a slave owner. Yeah, he's We a also slave understand owner. Yeah. that he was not the beautiful black man that we see on stage. Okay, we understand that Washington was white. But because we know that about Washington, because we know his problematic history, we can, we can view things in this show as sometimes as we wish they would have been, and sometimes we're seeing Washington through Hamilton's eyes, right? So I think that all of these things can, can coexist each, at the same time. I don't think that by by placing these people of color in these roles here, we're not abandoning the, 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 the facts that slavery and prejudice were present at this time. We address those in the show, right? But it's crucial that we have this be the representation now because this is what we are now. I love that they made that choice. I love that it was on your list as to why this song is, is such a dynamo. And I think the proof is in the fact that we've talked about that line and its implication for what, 10 minutes now? Five minutes? I don't know. But like we've talked about it a lot longer than you would think the line would deserve, but it does. Yeah. All right. Now that now that we have talked about it for 10 or 15 minutes or whatever, <laughs> I think we're good to move on. It's immigration and like the politics of all this will will certainly be coming back as we as we go along from here. Let's just start, I think, with, with Yorktown. At the at the beginning, we're in Virginia. We're not in New York, which is good to know. Um, the, the play does not help you out with that at all. And Hamilton and Lafayette get to fucking bro out for a minute. They're yeah. there. And like, so there's two things immediately that I just want to call out real quick. Lafayette being like in command where you belong. Like, yeah, motherfucker, I did this. Like, I mm-hmm. am like, yeah, mm-hmm. look what look what I did. I am Lafayette. And this is because of me. So I like that little bit of it. But I also really like when Hamilton asks like what, what he's going to do after. He's like, I'm just going to go home and give freedom to my people. And I. Again, this is not the real life universe, but the the I, I like that in the musical universe, Lafayette's just like a a, a worldwide shit stirrer. Like he's gonna come here, he's gonna stir the shit, and he's not in it for any <laughs> other reason than once he's done here, he's gonna go stir the shit back home. Like he is mm-hmm. just a professional worldwide shit stirrer. He's coming here, he's fucking causing a ruckus. Then when he's done with this ruckus, he's gonna go and cause another ruckus. And I just like that for Lafayette's character because it's perfect. I love it too. It's it's great. It's also nice to have like an idea of what Lafayette is about to do because we are approaching with this this bro out, this friend check-in moment. I love what whatever you wrote here about our friend check-in time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to get everybody's trajectory and we get it with Lafayette. We will eventually get Lawrence's trajectory, sadly. It's nice to check in with these men because we're about to start saying goodbye to them 
And so now we know what Lafayette is going to go and do. And it's it's nice to have this moment with him. And he is. He's an international shitster. Yeah. You know. Uh Marquis de Lafayette, freelance shitster. You've got shit, that, that, I'll that's stir. That's how it. it's portrayed in the musical, and I'm yeah. so here for it. So here for it. I love it. it. I really do. And and it's like, okay, I need this. Uh, the the energy there is I need this revolution to be successful because if I have the momentum of this revolution, I can parlay that into bringing the same back to France. Yeah, and that so I know, have, a, I, have a, I do have a technicality palpable. question here though. Yeah, sure. So What's Lafayette's up? gonna go from here to to bring a revolution to France. He's currently like an officer under the the French king. He's gonna later try and overthrow. Right, like that's just the mechanic here. Hmm. Okay, so cool. I just want to just like Lafayette is currently a uh, a French officer under the command of the king, who this revolution he's referencing will attempt to overthrow, and that's his vibe right now. Yeah. Gotcha. So the uh, so the Marquis de Lafayette and the Vicomte de Rochambeau uh, were were birth uh, were were both military officers in the French army that right. were detached to the American army. Um, uh, Rochambeau led the French expeditionary force, uh, which, which may or may not, if I remember right, be like a precursor to the French foreign legion. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, Lafayette was an aristocrat and member of the army. So he is, so here he is making allusions to a coup later, but I think what's important here is like there is an implication of a coup d'etat yes and later the french revolution does actually occur uh you know we'll 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 help we'll uh help the french when they figure out who's going to lead them the people are leading the people are rioting uh that we we see later in hamilton but here yeah like he is implying that that's possible but i think what's more important to the narrative of hamilton the musical is that he is loyal to the idea of freedom for all right and the idea of freedom for all is crucial to the song yorktown and I think that's more important than Lafayette being like, I'm going to go start another fight. I don't care. But I think that is part of his personality. Like he is. I just like to, how he's out here, yeah. like growing out with Hamilton, talking about the revolution. And once he's done, he's going to go commit treason, overthrow the king. Like it's just casually like, yeah, that's my whole. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm about. Uh, moving on from here, we get uh, Hamilton. We do get the friend callback section. Before that, though, mm-hmm. we we get um, Hamilton kind of doing his thing. We get some callbacks to he's not throwing away his shot. He imagines death so much it feels more like a memory. Like we have another rendition of that with some different lyrics to, to make it apropos to what we're watching. And we also mm-hmm. get this moment where for 10 seconds, he cares about Eliza and his kid. It's gonna, yep. It's a fleeting moment, but he's taken yep. what she has to say to heart. And he he has this moment where he's like, yeah, can we get this? Like, can we be quick here? Like, I know the British are a thing. We got to kill him and finish this. But like, can we? I got to go back. I have things to do. I got a wife. I got to see my son. Like, I like here that he's at least acknowledging after that whole um, beautiful performance by Philip Pissou earlier, that he's at least acknowledging their existence in a way that 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 tells me he's prioritizing it to some degree. It does a lot to endear Hamilton to us, right? Because we could have reason as the viewer or listener to question where his priorities are. 
And now we're capable of seeing him have a fairly balanced prioritization between the war effort and his family. Like, I I think it's funny you're for 10 seconds he thinks about them. But I also think that that 10 seconds is enough here because at least he is thinking about them. And that this modicum of thought from Hamilton is honestly in the context of this show, personal growth. <laughs> oh, this is this is huge. This is a huge moment, a fleeting moment of personal growth, of caring for his family, of making them a priority. And it'll like I said, it's fleeting, but it's here right now. Mm-hmm. And it is important. It is important that we understand this about him because we need to get this call back to Eliza. Also, love her on the balcony upstage with the letter. While this is happening, that is great staging, keeping Philippa on stage. We connect her to what's going on here. And we got to have this down because we're about to get into, number one, the reprisal section of the show and the foreshadowing section of the show and the breakdance fighting. So, like, right. it's nice to have this tender moment of contrast before we get into the electric meat of Yorktown. Yeah. The next up is the battle. And mm-hmm. or part of the battle, the first kind of bit of it, Hamilton. This is one of my favorite battle strategies uh, of all time. Not that I'm really experienced in the topic. I'm sure there are more interesting ones out there. What I do like is what what I actually miss from the the musical. Totally understand why it's not in here and why they just kind of do their their dancing to to talk about the battle. Right. Mm-hmm. I really think the storming of the redoubts is a huge moment because that's not an easy thing, and the likelihood of death is high. Like, in the musical, it's Mm -hmm. hard to portray. Like, it's Hamilton and Lafayette. Each, I believe it's readouts 9 and 10, right? I think those are the numbers. And they each storm one of the readouts. Like, they are putting... Like, what's important to note here is Hamilton is putting his ass on the line. This is not a safe strategy. This is not a easy battle this is not something that's easy to win this is hamilton for days after day or day after day after day after day this battle i want to say lasts like 12 days or so right this is hamilton truly out there in command on the front lines not on his horse in the background like waiting to see how things go and i think that's important as we look at his character going forward just to acknowledge that this is really hamilton in the throes of war and actually commanding these men and actually rushing this readout and not just kind of hanging around and generally being a part of it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think for the benefit of our two listeners, we might take a moment to actually describe what's going on here because I actually do think it adds some context to to this song and and what they're representing in the choreography and what what a fortified redoubt is in the context yeah. of sieging a city and trench warfare because the battle of yorktown it's best to think of it here's here's my shorthand and then we can go back and forth but the the best way i can describe it to anyone listening is that the battle of yorktown was more like a medieval siege than a pitched battle in an open field and the american army was creeping they made their own trenches and then had to take the english trenches and it's much more impressive what Hamilton did and Lafayette, don't get me wrong, but also like Lawrence was here, which is left out. I'll talk about that later. Anyway, so it's much more impressive if you understand that Hamilton is saying, we're about to go charge an enemy fortified position in the middle of a field outside of the city. 
and I want your guns unloaded. That's the thing. Like we're going in. Like I, I love that the musical at least acknowledges how absurd this sounds because it ends up anything, anything in hindsight is twenty twenty. And of course, if you win, whatever strategy you won with looks good. This mm-hmm. is fucking bonkers. If you are just a casual soldier, Hamilton it, within this musical just got this command, and this dude shows up, and the first thing he tells you <laughs> is, "Hey, we're gonna rush that that really fortified position." heavily fortified heavily armed position without any bullets it sounds absurd and i like the what lines in here just to just to just so we understand as the viewer that it is a crazy strategy everyone else thinks it's crazy also you know when you win you win turns out to be a winning strategy yeah absolutely but there is wisdom in it because we are talking about flintlock muskets right so they could be volatile and if you have your pan loaded with powder and it abs- and it accidentally goes off, you could give away the position. You give away the position. It's a it's a spycraft move. They're fighting with bayonets. They just mm-hmm. need to get close enough for the bayonets. And if their guns go off, like they're doing this in I believe it happens like under the cover of night. Like they're it does. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're and storming that's... these readouts at night, and the guns going off would give away the position, and that's why they have to be unloaded. It makes sense. It still sounds fucking crazy though. It does. It does sound crazy. I also, part of the, it happening at night, I love the inclusion here of the code word is Rochambeau because once the, once the troops were inside the trench, they were going to start taking out all of the English in the trench that resisted, and there were going to be more American troops coming in behind them. So when you entered the trench, you were to give the password that was taken, you know, the the name of Rochambeau in his honor, you were supposed to say that so that people understood that you were a continental and not British because it was dark, dirty, close-up fighting. And they did it because they thought they could take the trench quicker by hand than to keep shelling it. So they kept all of the howitzers firing on Yorktown directly and used the infantry themselves to take the position. This is actually a harrowing maneuver and is what cements uh, Hamilton as a war hero, because had this not happened, he would have always been respected. He would have always been venerated for what he had done politically and with Washington as his aide de camp. But in act two, we get uh, how does an immigrant uh, decorated war vet did it all you win it all you ready for like that decorated war vet that comes here. Right. And it's the, the musical does a really good job of making you feel excited, getting you moving. You're, you know, you're in with the energy of the battle, but it does kind of whitewash some of the bloodiness of exactly what's going on here. And how brave Hamilton actually yeah, was. I just want, yeah. You know? So it whitewashes the battle, which I totally get, but it also kind of goes over a little bit just how much of a of a heroic kind of effort this was from Hamilton. Oh, it does for sure, absolutely. Like it, yeah, this is yeah. like like I said, it's not him. Like if you watch like the war movies, it's not him like standing on the horse watching the battle, or standing on the horse. Like he's not on the horse like two fields back <laughs> on the he's hill. Not Annie Oakley. Yeah, like he's he's not watching this from afar. He's like fucking in it to win it. High probability mm-hmm. of death, and he's out there actually fighting. And I think that's just important because that's not really portrayed too hard on the in the musical. Sorry, 
Mm-hmm. It works for me though because we get the feeling of victory. Yeah, you get the, the feeling of it. The whole, yeah. yeah, the whole tune evokes victory. It evokes conquest, right? And and it's it's ascendant. Um, everything keeps moving up until that final, like until that final button where we get out of it. I, I speaking of that ascendancy in the music here, I love your your commentary on the orchestration. That it's like hip hop and folksy and country all oh, at once because together. I also yeah it's it's interesting to me as well because it is it's uniquely American to have all yes. of this very energetic fiddle playing on top of hip hop yeah but at the same time it also has this weird Cotton Eye Joe feel to it that's exactly yeah it's like it's so weird it's like it's like synth it's like synth wave meets hip-hop meets country meets like folk music all mixed in it's great it's fantastic yeah but it just it feels somehow weird and right at the same time because there is this legacy of bluegrass there's that instrumental folksiness to it it just it's somehow it feels weird and right at the same time i kind of adore it <laughs> yeah it, i i adore it i i wanted to call it out just because it's unique but i do i mm-hmm. do adore it for sure um we af- we both also adore hercules here might so be worth that's checking where i on was real going quick. with this so so here we go <laughs> hamilton's bad plan hamilton's bad plan fucking pays off because we get Lawrence and he's out in South Carolina <laughs> redefining bravery. Fuck Lawrence. Okay. We have Lafayette. He's bossing it up in Chesapeake Bay. Fuck Lafayette. He's doing like, he's fine. But who do we have here? It's the one goddamn spy from the one spy plan. It's Hercules Mulligan. And he is here to just, I don't even know. Honestly, I don't even really think that this like narratively even fits perfectly, but he does such a good job of like, how did we know that this would work? I uh, Hercules Mulligan, and then he just goes with it. It's like Hamilton is like the hype man now for Hercules Mulligan, the same way that Aaron Burr was the hype man for Lafayette, and it's just his moment, and he takes it, and it's perfect. And of course, one spy was all you needed to win at Yorktown. There was no other spies, none. It was all. Um, <laughs> it was all just the one spy plan here, Hercules Mulligan, but just what a stunning performance. So funny. Again, taking what your character is and adding to that without going overboard, right? Like David Diggs could not do this song, right? It's taking, Mm-mm. it's Mm-mm. taking the actor and the character of Her- Hercules Mulligan, do it and putting it together and like maximizing it without overdoing it. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah, Oak is really the only one that could do this. I mean, he just it's nails perfect. it. Perfect. Yeah. It's I I love your admitting there that narratively, like you do wonder like is this like it kind of does does it work? Does it you know whatever. There's uh in uh, uh in the industry there is a joke about this moment being Deus Ex Mulligan. Because oh, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's how like, did this work? Oh, he yeah, did. You like, know, here you like, go. Here's how it it's, worked. You know, it's totally contrived that 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 her. It's like you work. You want. You want. It, you worked backwards from this moment. You wanted Hercules Mulligan to have this moment in the play, so you like worked backwards to how do we how do we end up at this moment? And it's like, oh, the mm-hmm. spy part of it, and that's why. Like, it's not really that true to life, and it doesn't really fit narratively. But it's so fucking awesome that it doesn't even matter, which is great. Right, you can it, make me not care. Like I'm currently on this podcast analyzing this show and each episode is longer than the musical. 
If you can make me not care about that analysis and just adore this performance so much, you've completely won. Absolutely. And that's something that you and I have both been intent about already. It's like, look, we're our, we're going to bring in the historical stuff when it's interesting and where there's a there's a discussion to have about the adaptive choices where it's where it benefits. But we've both admitted we're in the Star Wars side of things, not the Star Trek side of things, right? And here, Mulligan is our narrative avatar for all of the espionage that happened during the war. Because you cannot have every spy on stage. Yeah, and of course not. You can't. It's funny to talk about having one spy. That gave us some great podcast content. <laughs> but here, having Hercules Mulligan be the avatar for the all of the espionage of success here is narratively successful, but also loyal to what happened. Because yes, they did understand we could end this war at Yorktown because New York is too well fortified. If we try to retake New York, we're going to get stuck. But Cornwallis is in Yorktown, and it's well fortified. But if we have the French Navy, they don't have the ability to escape by sea. There's, there's nowhere to go. They're stuck there. There's absolutely nowhere to go. Because if you try to get out of Nor Yorktown and go east, and you're, pin you're pinched in by a Navy, you're done. And that is what made it successful. So having Mulligan as the simple one-man avatar, especially with this dynamic performance that Oak brings here, you're like, yeah, I am on board. <laughs> Let's go. You know, you don't, you don't need to question the historical accuracy because, once again, you've bought the show at this point. You're on board. You are so in it to win it. And I think that if there, if there were 100 spies working for the Continental Army, Oak's performance here, he's got the bravado to be a hundred men. This guy is amazing. I am like every time when he's on stage, I can't take my eyes off of him. I, I just get this, this huge, uh, Busta Rhymes, DMX yeah. aggression coming from him. It's <laughs> just like so dynamic. I can't take my eyes off of him. Also, I love if you watch on Disney plus, and you turn the closed captioning on, when he blows a kiss to the audience, it says kiss in brackets. Oh, really? Which is just completely, completely just... unnecessary. Because right. you can watch you him see, kiss. You can see it, yeah, yeah. But it says kiss, and it's like, thank you, Disney. Yeah, you want to make that. sure I know that Hercules is kissing me. And I appreciate that, Disney. I love it. <laughs> I love it. All right. Hercules has his big moment. And after that, we get that big folksy whatever. I don't even know. It's like it's like electro folk. I don't even know how to yeah. describe it as a genre. It's, we get all that. Wild. We get all the dancing. We get all the hype. And that's incredible. And then it just immediately like comes down. It rides up. And then it just comes not crashing down. Very like very um organized landing. But it comes down into the surrender. Now, the mm -hmm. surrender is a point, too, that I think that that, that is important um, to talk about just really quickly, kind of historically. And I'm not a historian or anything. This is just like my whatever knowledge that I happen to stumble upon. Uh, winning at Yorktown was an important victory because of the sheer amount of, of just British forces they were able to get surrender. And it kind of reframed mm -hmm. the British 
whether it's the king or the generals or whoever, it reframed the British way of thinking about whether this war was worth it. it was worth all the effort. But like like you said, New York is still heavily fortified and full of British soldiers. This isn't like the whole British army that they've defeated, but they've defeated enough in a big enough show of force to get the, all of the British army to surrender. Is that kind of historically accurate, that this is not the whole British army, but this is a significant portion of it and enough... There's enough people here that have been forced to surrender that everyone else is like, oh, shit, if they can do that here, then we're fucked. Like, we got to get out of yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really that's a very good functional understanding of what's going on here because they've got Cornwallis cornered. Right. right. And if you want to do the Cliff Notes version of the English war effort here, you've got Cliff, you've got Cornwallis and the Howe brothers. Right. So you've got. You've got one Howe brother is in charge of the Navy and one Howe brother is in charge of the Northern Army. And you've got Cornwallis. And at this point, most of the central command of the colonial forces for the British are under the command of Cornwallis, which is why he's such a key figure in The Patriot starring Mel Gibson. Anyway, so they knew that Cornwallis was pinned into Yorktown if they could surround it. And they do. And they get Cornwallis to surrender. So at this point, it's not so much that the crown has given up the war effort. It's that the bulk of the English efforts on the continent have capitulated. That's what matters here. We still have skirmishes for a couple years. We don't have like formal documents of permanent end of conflict until 1783 if i remember correctly I think it's two years after i think it's around two years yeah after. so i mean and, and we're gonna get we're gonna get some ill omens of these future con conflicts coming out soon in in the next episode of this podcast yeah. stay tuned for more drama uh but yeah so the reason this is the turning of the tide is that so much of the British war effort has been knocked out of action here, right? So it is it is a huge win. And for a bunch of people, it is a win to the point where they can retire from the war effort. One of those people is Hamilton. Right, like, sure. After the war, I went back to New York. The context for after the war, I went back to New York is... After the Battle of Yorktown, meanwhile, a bunch of people were still fighting for a year and a half. Yeah. Um, the reason why I wanted to bring this up, I think it's just an important historical context. So this isn't like all of the American army against all of the British army and they murdered all mm -hmm. the British people. Like, that's not quite what happened. Um, but also because that was the plan. Like, why I pulled up the lyrics to stay alive right now. Um, don't engage strike by night. Remain relentless till their troops take flight. Here's the keyword. Make it impossible to justify the cost of the fight. When Hamilton mm -hmm. and Washington are talking about battle strategy, the strategy is never, like, defeat the whole British army. It's to get a victory like Yorktown, where you do enough damage with enough of a show of force that it kind of makes them go, like, ah, this is, this is a problem. Like, we can't keep doing this. Yeah, and, and this is then reinforced and paid off in what comes next. The price of my war is a price they're not willing to pay. Yeah, exactly. It's enough. They've, they've won enough of a huge victory here 
to, to mm-hmm. win the war. But the, I, I, just, I just think it's important that it's not like all the Americans on one side of a field and all the British people on another side. And they just kept shooting each other till there's like three Americans left to claim victory. Like, that's not at all how Yorktown went. Right. Like, that's not the right. Yeah. And, it's, and it is interesting the way it works out, although it's not uncommon in warfare. There are often people that straggle behind that that may not get the news for a couple months and they keep fighting. There's a great story about World War II uh, recorded in the book, um, The Last Battle. Yeah. Where there was a holdout of uh, German soldiers that just refused to stop fighting. And they had, um, they'd occupied a castle in Belgium, I think, where they had a bunch of prisoners of war and they just weren't giving up the war. Right. And this was months after VE Day. World War II was over, but these Germans were still fighting. And there were other Germans in the area, other Nazi Germans, but they had gotten their stand-down orders. And they learned about this this, uh, castle that was occupied by other Germans. And they joined forces with Americans in the area was the only time that Americans and Germans fought together in World War II and they joined forces to siege this castle and take it back from the Nazi soldiers that wouldn't stand down. <laughs> That's a cool and, story. And, li- and liberate the prisoners of war. But it was like the, the, the Nazis that fought with the Americans to retake the Belgian castle, like they, they, they had this sense of honor of warfare that we've talked about on this podcast before, like the honor of warfare, the honor of duel, all there are rules to this. There right? are, it's very structured. Um, there are rules. There are lots yeah, of rules and following them is on your soul and conscience. Absolutely. It's just, you know, it's, it's hilarious how often this comes up. It's so structured, but you know, then you get periods like this after the war, people are still fighting. They're not laying down their arms. And it keeps going for a year and a half. And we have unfortunate casualties, even after seminal events like the Battle of Yorktown. It's just funny that, you know, in American grade school, Yorktown is the end of the revolution. The Americans win. And the next chapter in the textbook is we magically have a constitution. You know, (laughs) there's this there's this interesting period after Yorktown that I have to give the musical credit for actually diving into because they could have chosen not to. Right. Absolutely. It's easy to choose not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So after the battle has been won, this is my favorite part of the song. It's another instance. It's not my favorite part of the song. It's one of my favorite parts of the song. This whole play is amazing. Um, it's one of the parts, again, in this musical where they're just saying things that happen and it's somehow interesting. Like, we negotiate the terms of surrender. <laughs> I see George Washington smile. Like, what the fuck, Alexander? Is this important information? Like, has George Washington not smiled in the last years? Like, what are you talking about? But it's, inter- like, it's, it's interesting. Like, we escort their men out of Yorktown. They stagger home okay. single file. Like, I love me, that this is me... interesting because this is just, it's completely just random intel that we can just assume. We can just assume that they escorted the men out of Yorktown and that they staggered home single file. And so I love that this is interesting because it sh- it's it like, should it be? But it is, and it just, ah, so good. Let me break in here quickly. Yeah. I'm just going to say the fact that it's mentioned, I see George Washington smile. The purpose of that line is to say how infrequently people see him smile. 
Sure. Yeah, I get that. I'm being, I'm being, I'm yeah. overdoing my point here just to try and be funny and to prove <laughs> the point. I totally get that. Right. But like, you could, if you took that line out of the play, I don't think I have a different, like, I don't think I notice. If this whole thing mm-hmm. had happened without the, I see George Washington smile line, I would have, I would never have gone like, oh man, they didn't resolve the George Washington smiling thing. Like that's just never yeah, come no, up. I feel you. It's never <laughs> come up. He's just bringing it up here for funsies. Like, he's a fun fact. Uh, we saw George Washington <laughs> smile. Then we partnered up with these guys to escort them out of here. And then it's like tens of thousands of people flood the streets. I just like this. I love the whole thing. There are screams and church bells ringing. Like he's just narrating. He's like reading a prologue or an epilogue here. He's like just reading. In a way he is. Uh, tens of thousands. That is actually a direct quote from Chernow. Like the, right. some of this yeah. is is right out. Um but yeah, I mean, there it is. It, it it's this this part of the number is a bit like a listicle, but the music, man, and the way it's delivered and coming out of that battle, like there is, like once again, this is the magic of musical theater. There is something about it where you just like you can't help but get swept up in it, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it just gets better as you get towards the end here, because then we kind of get these check-ins with everybody. Uh, Again, actually, you know, let's start there. Um, uh, the world turned upside down is a real drinking song. That's fun. It is. That's a yeah. real kind of British drinking song. This that this part of it is is totally authentic. Um, we do get a little bit of a a check in here. You know, Lawrence um checks in to see like black and white soldiers alike. It wonder if this really means freedom. Not yet. Do you want to explore that a little bit? You mentioned it earlier. I think it's I think it's cool to to explore that. I do. Yeah, it's. <sighs> this has always been a very important thing for me because I it's fascinating to me that they put not yet in Washington's voice. And this is coming on the back of talking about Lawrence, you know, sallying in with the first black battalion. And then he's in South uh, Carolina redefining bravery will never be free until we end slavery. And now we have black and white soldiers wondering if this really means freedom. And then we have Washington say, not yet. So, and this is what starts the discussion of what we do next, right? So, so Washington says, not yet. And then Hamilton says everything that they do. Terms of surrender, Washington smile, escort men out, right? All of this. Nowhere in here is we free the slaves. And it's important Ooh, that it's Washington saying. I've not never yet. noticed that it's missing. I just intuit it because I just know that Washington's a slave owner and that it doesn't get resolved for a while yet, right? Uh-huh. I, and it's still not even fully resolved today. Like there's still like lingering effect. Like it's never going to be fully resolved, right? But I've yeah. never noticed what's. It's addition by subtraction. It's missing. Yeah. I've never noticed that that's missing. That's so cool. It's absolutely missing. It's the standout. It's the sore thumb that's not in here. Absolutely. Right. We talk about it, and then Washington, a slave owner, says not yet, and then these are all the things we do, and free the slaves is not listed. So we have, like I said before, in this show, a very idyllic representation of the revolution and the revolutionaries that participated in it. Washington, we know, was a slaveholder, right? And here, the show is admitting to us, we as as creators of this musical acknowledge that Washington was imperfect. It is important that not yet is in Washington's voice. We see here one of Washington's sins. 
We see the show admit it. It is acknowledged. He is the one saying that not all black and white people are free here. That is important. I think it's crucial here. And it also acknowledges Lawrence's desire for uh, for abolition and Hamilton's as well. Like we do acknowledge that even though it wasn't necessarily always Hamilton's primary focus, it was important to him. And we've talked about that before, so I'm not going to beat that particular dead horse. <laughs> but I admire that they're in this tune that we already acknowledge is great and is important to the show. There's candor here about America's complicated relationship with a fight for freedom, but we're going to keep the slaves. This show is very candid, but it, it moves quick. But like in that, in that brevity, there's also honesty. And I, I think it's particularly and noteworthy, honest, noteworthily, noteworthy, I don't know. It's notably, notably, it's notably, leave all that in. Don't cut that out. Even <laughs> smart people stumble. It's notably honest that not yet is put into Washington's voice. I think it's crucial, especially when he's in the place of power. If you're watching the show live or on Disney Plus, he's upstage center, elevated. He's General Washington. Again, he's the venerated Virginian veteran. And there he is, upstage center, in pride of place. And he's the one admitting, not everyone is free yet. And that honesty coming from this show is breathtaking. I adore it. I think it's important. And the show would be weaker if it didn't come back to that issue, right? It's not just Hamilton that's like, we should free the slaves. He's not the only person talking about it. It's not cheap that he gets credit. Every, like, there are more people that discuss it. And giving Washington a flaw here, making him human, getting back to the fact that like the, we're, we're going to talk about everything that Washington was, not just the ideal version, it's really important and honest, and I commend them for including that in the show. Yeah, I have nothing to add, as per usual. You've made a lot of really good points, all of which I agree with. <laughs> so it's, it's, I like when you do that because it's very easy for me to like what that guy said. Um, yeah, I, 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 I like that I did. Again, like this is why it's important for me, at least in my own life. I always, anytime I, I vibe with a particular story, I always reread it or rewatch it or re go through it again. And it's for these moments. How many times have I watched Hamilton? Like, 50, like so many. Every song to do the notes, I listen to like on a loop, probably four or five times, even like just to write the notes. And you're still learning new things and noticing more and just, right? It's always been there, but you're kind of just discovering it for the first time. And I, I really love like doing the podcast for that reason. Um, but I love that Hamilton's such a deep and rich text because you can continue to do that after the 200th time um, that you've listened to it. Yeah, I'm discovering things too, but I think that's understandable considering just how many lines of text there are to explore in this show, right? Yeah. There's so much condensed in, so much to unpack. And I think it's it's worth doing this because I have found new meanings and lines that I have never encountered before, you know? And I can only imagine that you and I are not alone in that. I think it's the mark of a good artistic property where you get something new out of it every time you come back to it. Yeah, I absolutely, you know, I, I get, you know, there are some, there are some 
paintings, there are some movies. Every time you, Samson and Perkins, every time you view them, you're going to get new stuff, right? And for those listening, Samson and Ann Perkins are the vector cats. <laughs> <laughs> Some of those lines are very funny here. What I really love about the very end of this song is that Lafayette's up and he's like, freedom for America. He's got a purpose, like freedom for America, freedom for France. Hamilton goes up. He's got a purpose. Got to start a new nation. Got to meet my son. And then everyone else gets up and they just go, oh, we won. Oh, we won. We won. We won. Like they have no, <laughs> there's no dialogue. There's no purpose. It's just like this brute force. Just everyone like we won. <laughs> like cool. Thanks everyone for your contribution to this deep moment with all of our characters. And then, it, then the world turns upside down and it's over. It's just such a weird thing for me that two of the people, mm-hmm. two of our crew, get these like deep endings to this song. And Lafayette and Hamilton, it's a very bookendy thing because they started this song together so it makes sense Mm -hmm. narratively that they end this together as a perfect bookend to yorktown but it does feel slightly odd that everyone stands up they're on their chairs they're on their things they all get lines to say and the majority of those lines are just like meatheads yelling we won over and over again with only lafayette and hamilton getting getting like deep response i just there's there's nothing really to analyze here because it makes perfect sense but like it's just very funny to watch it is funny. It really is. I, I I agree with you completely, but devil's advocate, you know, they think victory is just as important as having a son is a way you could possibly read it, you know? Yeah, sure. And or it's like, they, but even they, like by the end, know, even Lafayette and, and um, Hamilton are yelling, we won too. It's just a fun moment. Right. We've won the war. They're, they, they're just kind of, I always like my head cannon is like lost in the haze of victory. And there's like, ah, we won. Yeah. We, like they're confirming it for each other, like just to make sure they're not sleeping. Or they're not dreaming. Yeah. Like, pinch me. Like, we won? We won? We won? Yes. Oh, shit. Yay. Like, I just, I love the moment for that. Yeah, absolutely. But I but I also think, like, if this is one of those things, and this is not the first time this has happened to you and I both. It's looking over the lyrics and thinking about them and working through prepping for the episodes is when we go, huh, that's weird. You know, it's when you're caught up in the magic of the show it doesn't bother you at all. And that's, that's right. just, it's one of those things like it's, it's definitely worth acknowledging, definitely worth breaking down. And I think that's the power of the show functioning as a unit. When everything's working together, when everything's rolling along, like you really don't get taken out of it. Cause it's just such a well-built show, you know? Absolutely. Oh, it's, I think, it's so good. I think, you know what? Yorktown's a doozy. I think this might be the most satisfied I felt about covering a song. I feel com- I feel empty. I have nothing else about like this is it's an amazing song. I've analyzed literally everything in my notes I want to analyze. This might be the first time that's happened. I am just so happy I, with this song. Yeah, I don't I don't want to break my arm putting ourselves on the back here, but uh yeah, I'm just wondering what comes next. <laughs> All right. All right, yeah, okay, let's for fuck's sake. <laughs> jingle. Someone get the jingle. We're coming back with a song. BRB. Oh, Bradley, thank you for that jingle. That was brilliant. Um, so I lied. I wasn't done <laughs> with Yorktown. I'm so sorry. Um, I, I feel bad because I was really proud of that transition. And uh, here, here we are. Um, I got a couple quick things. And then what comes next proper, and then I'll turn it over to you. Right, uh, go. For, first of all, 
if you're watching the Disney Plus version, the grid cam, we get an overhead shot of the stage, which is just damn cool. <laughs> like, so it is theater, just a theater nerd out moment. I like it. That is definitely a theater nerd moment. I love it because you are not going to often get that view of the stage. That is something that is often reserved for people working in the fly loft. Like if you have an overstage follow spot operator, for instance, like they're the only people that are going to see a top down view of what's going on on stage. And so sharing that with the audience is uniquely brilliant because it is rare to get that view. Number two, I do want to call out the lighting design throughout Yorktown. Because interestingly enough, it is uh, like really energetic. Whereas earlier, like we have seen some some like leanness, right? In um, Right Hand Man, the lighting design is pretty lean because the energy is coming from David, right? There's a lot going on in the choreography and the performance. And so the lighting design can kind of lay back and not provide too much energy except for those pops on Hamilton, right? There's a lot going on. So you don't have to like overwhelm the audience with, with more. Sometimes the, when the ensemble is providing the energy, you kind of lay back with the lighting a little bit. When we get into Yorktown, this is where we are like full blast, all going, you know, it gets crazy. And then the stillness that zero count snap right before, after a week of fighting, you know, a man in red coat stands on a parapet. Like that that zero count snap on the tableau with all of those isolated pools on the ensemble, it's breathtaking. Every word of what you just said means absolutely nothing to me. That's, that is incredible. <laughs> I have no, the isolated pools, the tableau, I have no, I love that because I don't need to know what you're talking about because you're so passionate about it, but I honestly don't understand a word of that. That's incredible. So, so well, let me, let me break it down just a little. Maybe I need to prepare a, um, like a theater jargon uh, dictionary for, for the listeners. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so a tableau is a visual picture where people are static on stage, right? So there's if you're if you're looking at um if you're looking at Yorktown, there is the uh after Hercules Mulligan, there's the record scratch choreo break. And then things uh there's a decrescendo and everything goes to a button and everyone gets static, right? Where they're they're posed and they're they're not moving anymore. So once they stop moving and they're frigid. They're static on stage, and they're all in in unison, static. That is called a tableau. It's a visual picture without movement. And the before that, you have this chase sequence within the lighting, which is lights flashing on and off. But this is a color chase, meaning the lights are not necessarily turning on and off. They're changing colors. So it's from red to that like light, amber, heavy white. And so you go from all of this momentum to something just static and you get that resonance in the music coming down that decrescendo down into that violin refrain right and that and then that's before so all of that the contrast between all of the energy coming into that snap on the tableau so a snap or a bump are zero count light cues right so a bump is usually going up 
and then snap is just a change in movement is is those words there so it's just there's there's so much dynamic energy in the lighting there it's just every time i watch this i'm like howl you were a you were a genius man like <laughs> you will be you will be very sorely missed yeah. um anyway so there's that so then also bullet watch uh, a bit like your canalysis from the Civ stream. Yeah. Uh, b- uh, beep, 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 bullet watch. Uh, I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory. The bullet is right next oh, to yeah. Hamilton. She's right there. She's also yeah. next to Lawrence, too. Um, when yeah. He's redefining yeah, yeah, yeah. Bravery. She shakes his hand. She gives the curse to him. He's about to go die. And then, again, uh, my last random note for Yorktown researching this episode I found out that Oak is only a year older than me. I need to get my ass in gear, man. Yeah, I get that feeling a lot when I'm watching something. And I'm like, oh, fuck, that person's probably younger than me, aren't they? Right? Like, yeah. Watching hockey players now, like if, I was a, if I was a professional hockey player, I'd be like just, and like just coming out of my prime. It's like, oh, man. Like, ah, yeah. oh, that sucks. Watching all these like 18-year-olds like be really right. good at their... Yeah, I get it. It drives me crazy. And I think at the Battle of Yorktown, Alexander Hamilton was 26 or 27. And I'm just like, ugh. ugh mm. I mean, I'm, not, I'm turning 26 next weekend, so I'm kind of right there still, but that's okay. Hey, you're, you're doing terrific, bud. You've got a job. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is true. All right. So now... So now that I've, uh, uh, so that's my, that's my last, that's my last shots on Yorktown. I just, I had to get it all in there. I felt bad. I felt bad for not doing it in the actual segment. I wonder if I'm going to, I wonder if I'm going to be able to do like a jingle remix and then do another jingle here, or if we're just going straight into what comes next. I don't know right now until I edit. So the audience who's listening to this, I guess you'll see what I end up doing, but something's about to happen and we're going to what comes next. What comes next sees uh, King George come back onto the stage. There's a lot to discuss here. I want to discuss this song a little more thematically, though. It's this, analyzing this song is coming at the perfect time for me in terms of my personal um, content absorption, right? Um, I read a lot of books. I watch a lot of TV shows and movies and like musicals and all of that stuff. So I feel like I'm fairly well-versed and what's currently happening in the in the pop culture world world and what's popular and if there's like a popular tv show it's most likely that i've at least tried it or tried to watch it and i just finished my first rewatch of the last kingdom which is a show on netflix that you should definitely watch it's absolutely phenomenal and part of the theme of that show i'm not going to spoil anything here so don't worry um part of the theme of the show um one of the underlying currents is heavy is the head that wears the crown there's a lot of leaders and rulers in that show, and they need to make a lot of really tough choices. And sometimes you love them for it, and sometimes you hate them for it. And I've just started my rewatch. Like I mentioned, I love to rewatch things. So I just finished season one again on my rewatch, and it's been a fantastic experience the second time. I There was something that happened in the fourth season, again, incredible to watch, that really bothered me for days. Like one of the choices one of the rulers made bothered me for days. I like I know it's a fictional show, but part of what... Part of what makes this amazing is like Hamilton, it, it becomes real life for you. And we're talking about it in real life on a podcast right now. And I remember not being upset or angry, but just trying to wrap my head around a decision that one of the characters made. And it was made solely because they were the ruler. They had to choose between something that would kind of personally benefit them and benefit someone they cared about 
or or between kind of not really betraying them, but be kind of doing something kind of dirty and underhanded to someone who, who's who's kind of been responsible for their rise to power, right? But it was the right decision to make now as the ruler of these people. It was the right decision for the people, but does not honor kind of how you ended up being the ruler in the first place. And I struggle with that for days because heavy is the head that wears the crown. It is a hard job. And King George is portrayed as like just a freaking shit stick. And it's like, he's just a dumb mad King. But <laughs> what he is getting at here is like, good job. You won. What are you going to do now? Cause it is not easy to lead. It is not easy. It's not going to be easy to set up this whole country. And just at this moment where I'm really thinking about that theme with the last kingdom and how I feel about some of the decisions that were made by the characters in that show. And I'm still like mentally working through it all. This song couldn't come at a better time. Cause he's making good points. It's really fucking hard. It's so hard to, to lead and be the king of, even if people generally have a negative view of Kings, it should not take away from how hard and thankless and like such a difficult job that is to keep everyone kind of happy and make it work. And so, and so I just wanted to call that out that while the, the King is portrayed in Hamilton as being kind of a fool. And I appreciate that because it's very funny. The the theme and what he's trying to say here, I think is, is really true to life. And I appreciate that. I think it's worth calling out. I think it is true to life. And the history of America in reality and in this musical proves him right. And we do get to watch him enjoy America's struggle later. We bring him back and he's confused about how America is making its decisions regarding leadership. And we get to see him enjoy it being very difficult for America. Right. Yeah, he 100% is, exactly. Yeah, he is right about a lot of things here. He does have the experience of being in leadership. He is not a monolithic evil character. He's not the dragon in the wilderness. He's not Grendel. He's not Ursula. He's not pure right. evil. Yeah, he's not. Know? That's what I'm trying to say. Is he's not pure yeah. evil. Here. Yeah, absolutely. He's making yeah. a bunch of good points. Yeah, it's. It's engaging how the show humanizes him because he is one actor, one character, and through him, we're supposed to view the entirety of the British Empire. We have one man who is the avatar for an empire upon which allegedly the sun never set, <laughs> right? And on stage, we're we're less terrified of the redcoats with their muskets than we are of this one man, which I think is a credit to Groff's performance. But also, he has more personal presence, and I think that it's it's really great that you call out the 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 dent of experience, the knowledge that the show lends to him, because I think we're supposed to and we're supposed to take that at face value. We're supposed to understand that he might be right about this and America might be in trouble and might have some problems coming down the pipe 
Spoiler alert, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all framed in this jilted lover kind of way that we're going to talk about with the cheat line because I love that you and I have opposite interpretations of this line. I do too. But, I like that a lot, yeah. But yeah, it's coming It's coming from the point of like someone who's being portrayed as kind of a fool and kind of silly and kind of dumb and kind of like a jilted lover and he's so blue and that's really funny. The actual point he's making though is, is true to life and, and is good experience because he's pretty much saying, look, you might not have liked me, but it's so fucking hard to do this that you might not even end up doing a better job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't even think, like, whether you're going to do it well or badly, I don't even think you've thought about it. Right. Like, I don't think you've yeah. planned ahead at all, which for me goes back to the jilted lover thing where it's like, who are you going to find that's better than me? Like, yeah. you really think you can do better than me? America? Well, even later, there's a line like winning was easy. Governing's harder. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. like Washington even brings it up later. Let's talk about the cheat line for a little minute here. So I've yeah. always interpreted this line as like the British. I always interpreted this line as King George is out there and he's talking about like he is the avatar for the British and they were fighting the Americans. And then the cheating bit was America calling for French help. And like, hey, we mm-hmm. were winning, and then you cheated, like playing, like playing darts, and then getting an extra dart to throw, right? Like, hey, we were playing a fair game here, our side against your side, like skins versus shirts here, right? Like we're playing, mm-hmm. and then you called in a whole <laughs> other team. Like, what the fuck, dude? Like those weren't the rules. Mm-hmm. So I've always interpreted you got a ringer. Like, yeah, I've always interpreted it as like actually cheating at the game of war like we were fighting each other and then you guys are cowards you called in the french to help you i didn't know that was part of the rules right like so but you've got it a completely different way yeah i do i i feel the uh the uh the pang of a broken heart here it's it's (laughs) the it's america is supposed to be loyal to england i really i see England here as someone who's being a very manipulative uh, uh, lover. Like an emotionally trying abusive, to significant um, other. Emotionally abuse the colonies, yeah. And there's uh, there's jealousy here. Like, you cheated on me. You you decided that. And again, this goes back to me, you know, we, we do have to remember that Spain, France, and the Netherlands are colonial empires just like england is so this is america saying i don't want you to be my colonial daddy i want france right sure i because i totally understand how you see the line this way i've just never mm-hmm. once thought about it that way till we talked about it and i never like i never thought about it in sports terms until you brought it up you know and i and i get it right I would I, I think if that was the implication, it might be you use the French to cheat or something like that. Or, you know, I just don't see it. But part of it is because I see King George the Third in the context of this show being steeped in a very British skiffle music tradition. I see him in the tradition of the Yardbirds and the Beatles. Um, and so like in that musical tradition. It's very easy for me to go to a place of that forlorn lover, right? That psychology fits well within the musical influences that I think make this character for this musical. And part of it is also just Jonathan Groff just sounds so hurt. 
Oh, he, yes, it that's sounds true. so yeah, personal. He, he to sounds him, like so right? personally broken by this. Yeah, yeah, he really does. I mean, he could have tried just is, being a better king. Like, it, he could at have, no point does he, he go, didn't. hey, this was my fault either. Like, he's not exactly owning up mm-hmm. to it. Absolutely. And part of another part of where where I'm coming at here, where it comes to like physical or emotional cheating, the idea of romantic fidelity is connected to. I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Right. Like love is brought up by him. Like he's the one that invokes it. So like when it comes to cheating, like I, I like, uh, it, it, it is like he, he believes that they were not on a break. Right. And America is Ross, right? 100%. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That is exactly right. I totally, it's just one of those awesome moments where, where two people can watch the same thing and read the same thing and come away with two totally different interpretations of it. I love when that happens. Yeah. I do too. I mean, this is like, uh, uh, that's what makes it interesting to discuss. And that's what makes Rothko uh, such great art. That's what makes Pollock such great art, right? Yeah, like you want to be able to look at it and come away with something different. All right. I think other than my big point for this one was really just that I think the King's making some good points that are true to life and they were really just relevant to how I'm thinking about another piece of cultural stuff right now that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm watching what I like about this is it's there's some there's some very big differences compared to his first performance and this is very different from his third performance as well and so you've mentioned the coat is a big one he's on stage he looks less regal he looks he looks defeated mm-hmm. like he's a costume wise he's a defeated king I I want to call back to how he doesn't interrupt the musical, the first time he's in charge, he's the king, he interrupts the song, Farmer Refuted, to have his say. Yeah. But here, it's like a slow descent into it. Like, he's not, inter- he's not, he's, he's not the king anymore, so he can't just interrupt what's happening. Absolutely. And I think that what I put in the notes there and what you put in the notes there, they actually go hand in hand. Yeah, they're together. His ability, they're, they're of a piece. Yeah, his, his ability to interrupt and his regal adornments, like those going away at the same time, those link up in a really nice way. Yeah. He's less regal, so he can't interrupt. And because he's like, he's trying to sneak his way onto the stage here and try to find a place for himself because he doesn't, he doesn't occupy the same space that he used to. His physical volume is smaller. Like his regalness has been reduced just by the simple act of removing that beautiful coat from his first performance. And again, a simple and clever choice that does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of the storytelling. There's also a bunch of funny moments in here. You know, the I'm so blue with like the foot down. That's something you only get on the Disney plus version. I can't even remember if that's in the version of Hamilton. I watched live. I feel like that was an adaptive. I feel like I didn't see that live. I feel like that's an adaptive choice. I might have. I'm trying to remember now. Oh, oh, interesting. I think at some point, I remember like in some interview or something, someone said that 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 came in later. Like that wasn't the original way they wanted to do it, and it just worked. The lighting just worked with how Jonathan Groff was doing it, or some. There's some story there that that wasn't always how it was done, but then it just kind yeah, of yeah. Well, and a it's thing. not with a, with a show that has a long run like this. It's not uncommon for things to occasionally change. Now sometimes. It, you know, it gets 
it gets sticky because like when you're doing an equity show like this, the stage manager is responsible for making sure that the, the show as it opened is maintained and replicated every night. Because once the show opens, the director is not involved anymore and it, it belongs to the company and the stage manager is required to, to keep things in line. However, this is a unique case where you have one of the creators in the show to probably have some more flexibility to improvise and, and change things. But I am very curious to know it's a chicken or the egg thing. Like, was the lighting cue there and then John Groff reacted to it and it became a bit? Or was it something that uh, Kale, the, the director, you know, wanted? Because I can see the director and, and Jonathan having that bit and Howell Binkley going, sure, you can have a cue there. Why not? You know, it's one of those things like there's the interplay between direction and performance and design in theater is such a it's such a dance. Everything is so integrated. It's very difficult, even for people in the business, to watch a show and know, like, oh, that decision totally came from the design team, or that decision totally came from the actor, or that decision totally came from the director, because it's all, it just eventually all gets souped together. It just all becomes eventually the sum of its parts, you know? It's really, it's, it's just a, either way, it's a great moment, right? You know, but it is just intellectually it's it's a uh, an interesting exercise to wonder about the provenance of like where that moment started. Yeah, there's there there's also other funny moments here. Like he he's meant to be a funny character. He has like his throws his hands up at the end, like ah fuck it, like whatever. Like mm-hmm. I don't really care about any of this anyway. Like he has there's a lot of funny moments in here that kind of add to it. And I like these little breaks because because King George serves the function of kind of like separating the story for us and giving us a little, giving us yeah. a little bit of downtime. Also giving the actors who've been on stage for however long now dancing, like grab some water, change your costumes, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Like whatever you got to do, get, ri- get rid of your coat that doesn't have any sleeves. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. The, the actors need a bit of a, <laughs> a pause time. And this is a very short song. And my last, my last kind of piece of analysis for this was I liked just the one simple, like da, 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 da at the end. Right, because it was used as like a way to show him or portray him as like a mad king, and now he's the sad king. He went from mad to sad, mm-hmm. and like the dot, like it's just a fun way to to kind of enhance that. Yeah, there's actually a lot going on psychologically in that moment because the because the um the button of the number is also delayed, which ties into that hand gesture that you just mentioned because you've you've heard the repeated da 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 das before now you don't get as many and so as the audience member you're you're waiting for more and the and also the number hasn't buttoned up yet so you don't know whether to applause or not and that gives that moment where the king can put his hands up and go, oh, you're not even going to clap? Like, you're not even going to do that for me? You're not even going to clap? Fine. Whatever. I'm just going to... So that delayed button added to the truncated dadas before his exit is what is what makes that moment so impeccably good and sets him up for that delightful give up, hands up moment. Yeah. Like, it's... Like uh, the the psychology of manipulating an audience is wild because you can keep people waiting to clap. Like people take the button of a number as permission to clap. And if you delay it, oftentimes they won't. Like they just will not start clapping 
because the the song isn't done. Like you can do it on purpose. You can control when people clap or not. And this is an example of when it's done on purpose and it cracks me up every time because I know the head game that's being played and <laughs> I delight in it. All right. Well, I think that's all. It's a small song. I think that's all I got for what comes next. Do you have anything else you're, you're hoping to really dig into here? Not really. I mean, it's a small song, but it's a delightful song. It's another great performance from Broadway veteran uh, John Groff. I mean, I just I delight in him. It's a tidy little number. It's important. And I think that, you know, there's there's not there's not a lot of length here, but I think that we've given it its due. I honestly I honestly believe so. Yeah. All right. Well, in that case, man, another three hour episode. And I said this one was going to be shorter. <laughs> whoops yeah i did too i was i was also wrong but here we are we done up gone and did it again (laughs) thank you everyone for joining us on our deep dive today just a reminder before we let you go that you can head over to twitter at let's dive deep you know what if you're still here give you a virtual hug and our email address is let's dive deep pod at gmail.com if you'd like to continue the discussion in the next episode we'll be discussing i don't even know there's two songs left and i forgot to put them in the notes one second one minute, one minute. Uh, Dear Theodosia and Nonstop. It's a two-songer. It's a two-songer next week to finish off the act. We're really excited. And then in between acts, we're going to have probably one or two episodes that are just for fun. I know we have to sort all of our Hamilton cast into Harry Potter houses, so that'll be super fun and all of that. Um, but thank you so much for joining, and we will see you in the next one.